Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Never Sport Podcast, where we talk more about the Nevers. I am Lee. I'm here. I'm joined by Spencer. Spencer, how are we doing tonight? Doing well, man. How about you? I am doing great. We are here for episode four of the Nevers. We are officially on the back half of the first part of season one of the Nevers. And I told you last episode, Spencer, I needed a filler episode. You did. I needed an episode where it wasn't going 100 miles an hour and potentially going off the rails. Yes. And people were dying and main characters were to going breathe. to breathe. And episode four gave it to me. For me, I got a breather. What did you think? This is a show of worries. I don't think it's ever going to be in my top 10. But this was the best episode of the show so far. And I honestly enjoyed more, not even just more of it, most of the episode. Of where it was, it had some very fun character moments. It had some legitimately interesting swerves in terms of the plot. It had some compelling mystery. This is television I'm going to enjoy. This was pretty solid stuff. Look at that. Best episode so far? Would you say Best episode so far. As you said, because it took a moment to breathe. It took a moment to have some scenes where people are just sitting and talking for a few minutes. Not many. It still jumped around a lot. But at least it gave us an opportunity to compress and analyze and honestly build up a little bit of theorizing finally. Yeah, and let me clarify for folks. Like when I I guess I said filler episode, I guess that was maybe a bad term. I don't mean that this was like a bad episode or that it was like there was nothing to it. What I mean was like this seemed like a sustainable episode of television. The last couple episodes did not feel sustainable to me. It felt like they were gonna run through the plot and be done with this whole thing in like six or seven episodes. This felt. This was the first time I felt like, oh, okay, they're going to be able to do multiple seasons of this show. And actually, I really appreciated it. I, I'm not sure it's my favorite episode so far, but I've liked previous episodes more than you. So I'm already in like the seven range for this show, and this this was firmly in the seven seven and a half range for me. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you early. We usually we do this in the other podcast, but I'm flipping it on you. One to ten, what'd you think? Episode four. I, I, I think I may even go to like a six and a half with this. And, and ladies and gentlemen, six and a half for Spencer is, woo, it is high. That is, that is high price. I mean, there's still some scenes I'm going to talk about that just thoroughly annoyed me, but there well, were You're always some... going to get that. You're, you're Spencer. <laughs> it's me we're talking about. <laughs> Half of my enjoyment is being annoyed at things. But there were some legitimately well done television. Not just, I mean, like we talked about, there was some well done filmmaking in a couple of the prior episodes. This was, again showing that they can put two people in a room just talking with each other and it's really well done and i like that they're going to do that more and i hope they keep doing that more because that's honestly been some of my favorite moments of the show i completely agree okay well let's get to the episode as always we will go through the recap then we will get into our segments we will award best line of the episode i and i am alone and Emperor best line of the episode then we will go to best character arc and Booby Prize for Worst Character Arc. And then the new segment that I threw in last episode, we can continue with this episode, which is just theory crafting time where we just get our hands dirty. We jump into Reddit, Twitter, whatever we can get our hands on, and we get theory crafting. And we'll do that at the very back end of the episode. Before we get started, I would like to say um, that the podcast continues to grow. The Never's More Podcast, Spencer, we're getting more and more listeners all along all along every day um it seems to seems to grow so we just want to thank everybody for listening we really do appreciate it we're enjoying going through this show with you like you we're seeing it fresh it's cold water for us every episode there's no canon there's no book there's no nothing so we're right there with you and we're enjoying the experience with you and 
you know, if you're listening to the podcast and you enjoy it, please subscribe, rate, and review. That stuff actually really matters. It gets us higher in some of the podcast search feeds, so more and more people see it. We really appreciate that. And we also really want to hear from you. Honestly, we do. So go to mangumtalks.com. This is a Mangum Talks podcast. Go to mangumtalks.com, upper right-hand corner, click contact us. Type in anything. Tell us we suck. Tell us we're great. Tell us what you want to hear. New ideas for segments. Tell us your thoughts on previous segments. Any and all things are welcome. I will read them. I will curate them. I will give them to Spencer. And we may talk about them on the podcast. So we really do appreciate you listening. Thanks for being involved. And and please be as engaged as you want to. Uh, We appreciate that stuff a lot. That out of the way, let's jump into the recap, Spencer. Before I start barreling through the recap, any thoughts from you? Uh, like on life or politics, you, well, well, you had religion. Your finger, you had your finger up there for a second, so uh, I wanted to see if you had anything for us. I was just going to say that our, our new segment on the subject of theories will also have to return to theories we've offered prior episodes, because, dear Lord, did the theory you offer in the prior episode get some serious legs this time around? Oh, it did. I can't wait to talk about it. I was, I paused and, and actually yelped. I got a yelp because uh, I did offer a theory. If you didn't listen to episode three, Kudos. I offered a theory in the back end of it. Um, and there might be some evidence for it. So let's get to that as we go into the recap. This is episode four, The Nevers, titled Undertaking. We start with the funeral for Mary. Predictable place to start, I would say. Um, all the touched are there, uh-huh. except uh-huh. one. Uh-huh. Except one. One person is not there. We don't see Amalia in parallel. Um, while they are carrying the casket, a decent bit of filmmaking here. There's a little bit of parallel mm-hmm. uh, shots. We get some folks unloading um, some boxes on dock on, a, on like what look like looks like docks or some unloading area. The yeah. warehouse like, of some kind, yeah, yeah, some warehouse like factory. That. Um, definitely like multiple men, probably like 15 people there who are, who mm-hmm. are moving these boxes around. We cut back, we see Mary get lowered into the ground. We see a shot of Lucy and Penance, and they sing a song. Um, Frank Mundy is there standing in the background. It almost feels like he doesn't belong in the grief because he's not touched. He stands apart. He's not a part of their grief. He seems to be grieving differently. He's very disconnected. Did you get that same feel? Very much so. And it's, it's both a fa- both a product of just actual differences in circumstance and also just the nature of who he is. He's always a bit of an outsider. He's always a bit of a recluse. He's always kind of on the periphery in terms of where he chooses to associate. It's just even worse here of where what was his only really contact with not only this, com- this community, but also really the kind of outer world, is now six feet down in the soil. So throw that wrench into the rest of his other connections to life. He's even more on the margins. I was really interested to see how Frank was going to handle this. And um, not to not to spoil uh, some of my later takes, but I'm going to need a Frank Mundy t-shirt because um, I'm becoming a Mundy stan. I, you know, I was worried about Mundy first episode because they were hinting that he was some way involved in, you know, sexual slave trade or something along that jazz. But he might have been. He might have been, by the way. <laughs> we don't know the full details, but yeah. it didn't look good. But the more we see of this man, the more I like him. And like you said, this episode, I was expecting him to just be a near comatose wreck of a human being. Instead, man rises up, overcomes to the best that he can, and really seems like he's going in a very positive direction as a character. Ready to start punching. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Mundy fan. But back to the funeral, we also see Lavinia has shown mm-hmm. up. Interesting. Anytime we see Darth Lavinia, I'm immediately... Imperial March just starts playing in your head. Absolutely. Um, and back to the funeral, we see Bonfire Annie also showed up. Uh, if you remember from the last episode, it looks like Bonfire is now part of the crew. She showed up. She heard Mary's song. Uh, her contract was severed. 
with Malady's crew, and it looks like she's back. So we, we've got uh, we've got Bonfire Annie there. They lower. Go, yeah, go ahead. As said, she wasn't on retainer. This wasn't a long-term employment kind of deal. She was clearly getting paid hourly. The terms of that deal ran out, and she went off to do her own thing. This is my interpretation of whatever relationship she had with Malady. Yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, I think you called that early because I was I was like wondering, you know, where she fit in the structure, and you were kind of like, nah, dude, I think she's like kind of separate, and she really is. And now it looks like she's she's she joined she's joined the crew. Um, yeah, 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 she's there. Yeah, for sure. Um, she hasn't signed the value statement quite yet, but she's at least you know participating in joint operations. Okay, and yeah, so Bonfire Annie is there, but we also see Frank Mundy again in the back. A lot of auspicious shots of Frank, and guess what happens? A couple of numbskulls show up. They start heckling the funeral. <laughs> Have you ever seen someone heckle a funeral before? This might be a first for me. Not outside of the Westboro Baptist Church kind of jazz. That that seems to be what these guys are standing oh, for representing. Call they we actually do have somebody who's heckled funerals before. That's a that's a very good call. <laughs> they, um, they would they wouldn't be caught dead wearing pink or purple armbands. I will tell you that. But similar kind of thing. Yeah, Frank Mundy looks like he's about to end their life, and Pennant oh. stops him. Um, says, "Don't do it. Not here." Mundy then says, "Where is she? The lady who can see the future." So he is looking for Amalia. Is Frank now the one character you're going to do an accent for whenever you can this season? I'm going to try every once in a while. I just tested that out. A little, little toe in the water. Cut to Amalia, who... Oh, yeah. Wait, you got something? I, I, like you said, I just wanted to compliment this scene. That the constant jumping around framing never feels jarring between the um, situation involving the funeral and the situation involving the docks. The parallels between the various boxes that are loading... Yeah, a, 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 a dead body they're burying in the ground and then weapons that they now can use for the purpose of death and destruction. And also just the building him that's going on throughout the entire scene that's getting louder and louder as the scene continues. This was well done filmmaking. I rather liked this. This could have been rather inept and just bouncing about with some jarring music, but it really had a nice kind of smooth fl- uh, feel to it. Yeah, I agree. And, and one thing I didn't mention is that during that jumping back and forth, it does look like the guys who are unloading the boxes at this dock or the storage facility or something, put them all down and stop. We do get that sort of like moment where it looks like they, they put them down and they, they seem to be done. There I thought a, they were done with their shift, but we learn later that they're starting to struggle. As we learn later, this is a Norma Ray kind of moment. Union, 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 let's put it together. Bernie Sanders marching into London, 18... <laughs> he was probably alive back then. Um, you, you joke? Maybe. We don't know for sure. Yeah, Bernie was unionizing even back then. Cut to Amalia, who is at a bar, drinking mm. heavily. Uh, a lot of chugging going on from Amalia. She gets up. I'm, I'm going to go through this scene. Um, I don't know that I loved it. Uh, hit the, I hit the high points. a little bit cheesy. Yeah, so I'm going to go quick. She gets up. She walks to her guy, playing a violin. She stopped. Another guy says, kiss for a pint. That was the deal. Amalia, I'm a woman of my word. Kiss for a pint. She turns around. She kisses the guy, playing the violin, not the guy she's talking about. Guy gets mad, grabs her. She takes the violin, bashes him over the head with it. He tackles her. Bold move from the guy in the bar to just tackle a woman. I thought that was that was a little wild. Um, she sits up, hits him. Tackled the wrong woman, by the way. Yeah. Sits up, hits him. Um, she says to the guy playing the violin, I'm going to need you in a minute. So, you know what that means. Uh, then she jumps into the fight and jumped to these credits that have not gotten better yet. I don't like what? the credits. I'm going to talk about it every week. Why on earth do they even have a button to let you skip these things? They're like three seconds. It's a logo and they're gone. <laughs> Come on. Like, 
the powers that be. There's got to be somebody from HBO who listens to this pod. You have to be doing a little bit of market research, hearing what the people are saying about your your show. Anybody associated with the show that's listening, please, for the love of God, get better credits. This is this is pathetic. I partly I love credits because I always love the I always love watching these shows over like dinner or whatever else, and so I call the credits my soup time. It's my time to go over and sing the sing the, sing the music, sing the uh, sing, sing the theme song while I'm getting my next round of food to come back and sit down to eat again. This show does not give me that chance. Yeah, I don't know. I just think it it just looks amateurish for a show that is this this nice, this high quality, high production value, everything. It's just amateurish. Anyway, uh, enough about the credits. Back to the scene. So Amalia is doing exactly what she says. Remember the last episode when she's yeah. talking to Mary and she says, she basically, we kind of poo-pooed the scene, by the way. We said it was sort of this false um, sense of vulnerability that she was giving. We didn't think it was real what she was giving. I'm still a little skeptical if it was true vulnerability, but she does kind of follow her word because she told Mary, you know, I get drunk too much, have sex with people I shouldn't, and I fight when I shouldn't. And that's what? exactly what she does. I never doubted that it was real what she was saying. I doubted the purpose of it. The purpose of it wasn't to, you know, like, honestly bar its soul. It was essentially to tell her a very British polite equivalent of fuck off. And that was the, the kind of purpose behind it. I didn't think she was lying at any point about what she does or how she spends her time or how she copes no. with grief. Yeah, well, I didn't I didn't quite know that she was explaining how she copes with difficult situations. She was just saying, because at the, cause the context of it, she was just saying, hey, here's something I do, right? Yeah. But now to find out that this is what she does when she's dealing with, like, grief. Sure. You know, it may, maybe it makes it a little bit more impactful. But um, I did take it to mean... Um, and this comes, this becomes important later, so I'm not just being sort of like crass. I did take it to mean that she was going to sleep with this guy with the violin, right? Yeah, and as we find out, that may also be a bit targeted, too, because as we later learn, he's actually apparently an agent also for the Beggar King, and she was, pardon the phrase, pumping him for information. Woo! Look at you. Double entendre. Yeah, that's exactly what she was doing. So, um, yeah, that's what we were meant to take from that. That's it. And you knew that, you know, I'm watching this, and I'm like, you know, we're going to get... A little bit too much for my taste. We're going to get some scolding from Penance. Like, yeah, yeah. Of course we're going to get that. Penance was rough for me this episode, man. She was rough for me this episode. She's rough for you every episode. You're Yeah, hater. but this, there's, there are some that are just even rougher. And her role in this scene, her role in almost every scene she was in was to take the air out of the scene. That's a good point. She was a little bit of a buzzkill. Cut to Lord Masson showing up at the docks. Union Breaker, watch out, Amazon. Here he comes. Is Masson's house logo the Yankees logo? Did you see the logo on the boxes? No, I didn't see it. It, it, it looks a lot like the Yankees logo. It was the NY for real? It, it's not an NY. It's probably an M in there. But there's more than a little bit of similarities in terms of its structure and shape and all that jazz. I wonder if Ma Masson's rocking like the flat brim navy blue. You look good <laughs> in that. You look good in that. A couple of J's. Mm. I like it. Um, Masson, union breaker that he is. Ask who speaks for the group. He's pointing to a guy who tells him that they... No, they are handling explosives, and they deserve more wages because of it. Masson walks up to some sort of lift. There, there's a stage there, apparently. Yeah, yeah nice of them convenient. to set that up for him. <clears throat> Opens a crate, pulls out a bomb. He asks if anybody knows what, to get, what it is. Some guy in the crowd does. Masson says, they're good for blowing up the enemy, saving our lads. So here we go. He's I making the patriotism. Place. Exactly. You're not really working for me. I mean, yes, I make money, you, but you're not really working for me. You're you work working for, for the country. troops. You're working for the troops, guys. Yeah. Masson, you know, Masson, a Bush Republican here a little bit, right? Um, very much framing everything for the troops. 
Masson sells a really successful speech here is what Masson does. But he's got a straight-up worker revolt going on. His workers are demanding better wages and union in a way that he's never going to get back. This man delivers a, like, one-and-a-half-minute speech, and it falls apart, at least for now. Here's the speech. You men are seeking a grievance. The docks are full of men who care about our troops and foreigners who care about nothing. I could fill our jobs in an hour. Get back to work, and I will forget this happened. No repercussions. You won't be docked for this stoppage. It's very generous. The men look very uncomfortable. Finally, the leader says, uh, go on, back to work, back to work. So it works. He breaks the, he breaks the strike with one speech. Uh, Spencer, do you think it was, uh, do you think he was, um, you think that was, that was a lie there? Do you think he was, he was no, I, I think maybe telling the truth. I, as we see when he leaves bluffing, the scene, that's the word I was looking for, bluffing. I don't think he's bluffing. I think he absolutely could rehire these guys in a heartbeat if he needs to. It would just be a hassle for him to do so. I also absolutely believe that what he's presenting to these guys is honest. He isn't going to th- he isn't going to can them. He isn't going to dock their wages. No, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the, this this was him basically saying, "I can destroy you. I choose not to." Also, he did a very effective thing with the. Yeah. Spe- with the explosives itself. <laughs> That's a good Before, point. He just tosses one at the guy, which completely undermines the theory these guys are working at. Is that, like, these, these are these are dangerous items. They could blow up at any time. This is hazard pay. And he just chucks one of the guys like, they're bombs. They're set. If they just blew up when you shook them wrong, they wouldn't be very effective, would they? He said if they were that unstable, they'd simply roll them over the line. Yeah. Which is a funny, funny, funny line yeah. there from him. It's a good point, too. Yeah, like you need a bit of a striker effect to get these things to go off. There's a certain measure of safety measures; otherwise, we could never ship them to you know the South Africa, South Africa to go launch launch at the Boers. So, both in a successful speech and a successful tactic, and I think honestly well meant, but very willing to use a stick in the future if they try him again. He snips this in the bud pretty effectively. Yeah, Masson, uh, Masson breaking the breaking the union there, the, the little little start of a union, not a union guy. Um, broke the strike. He, uh, as he's walking off, someone says, they are taking the carrot, my lord. He says, they are mouthing the carrot. If they spit it back out, we'll use the stick. So basically he anticipates that maybe he'll hear from this again. And he also, I should say, he does say when he's leaving, next time, talk to me as individuals to band together when you could stand alone. I expect more courage from an Englishman. So he even, in that line, he even just poo the entire concept of collective oh, yeah. bargaining. Yeah. yeah, just completely tosses it out the window, says you're all cowards if you don't talk to me when you're alone. But as he's leaving, we do get the sense that he expects that this will come up again at some point. And if it does, he'll use the stick. Now, uh, a character question for you. How do you think he would respond if an individual worker did come to him to voice a grievance? Do you think he would just ignore him? Do you think he would just write him off? Or do you think he'd, he'd listen to him? I think he would listen to them. But it would be through the, the same prism that we get from Lord Masson, which is... I'm not sure what sort of case some individual could bring to him that he would give them an actual raise. I don't think that's going to happen. Now, he will listen to them, and he will be honest with them that he's not going to give them a raise, and he'll probably give them a bunch of reasons why. But, yeah, I do think when he when he said that, I do think he was opening up a line. And if you were one of those workers and you wanted to talk to him, I think he would at least take your call. I think he'd take your call. I think he even might more respect, respect you more for doing so in terms of voicing the grievances. I think he might even reward you but it'd be for the purpose of undermining your cause. That he'd respect you, the individual, doing it. He'd promote you, the individual, for having the guts to come forward. He'd make you the new manager, but for the purpose of getting you over to his camp. He'd honestly legitimately respect you, but there'd be a purpose behind it. Uh, Yeah, I think he'd be making an example out of you in a positive way, right? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so look cut to the way who came forward to voice his grievances. An individual, look how he's rewarded. None of the rest yeah. of you. The rest of you don't go you ever back do that collective thing again? That's that's bad. I, I don't I don't take well to that. I throw a bomb at you when you do that shit. Just come to me. <laughs> Matter of fact, give me a call. I got a phone now in my in my my house. Give me I, a call. I don't I, I don't like it, but you can ring it. It's number three. <laughs> cut to the wake, and Penance is looking around. Then she finds Harriet, her guy, and Neil, I believe is his name, is back at school. I think Neil is in law school. That's what I gather. Mm-hmm. Penance is asking Harriet for a favor. Uh, Penance, I believe, is asking Harriet to get legal advice from Neil for some of the new folks at the orphanage. You have priors, some of them who aren't citizens. Harriet bemoans this idea, says she wishes she were a barrister. A barrister, I believe, is like a jurist, right? Is that someone who, like... like it- it's a like, form. Of, it's a form of attorney under the English legal system. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's like somebody who like tries cases or whatever. Yes. Um, and she says so they could lock up their enemies. She says she can't even apply to a Neil school. Quote: How are we ever going to see justice if we're not a part of justice? Potential line of the episode, very first one. I'm actually Spencer is a lawyer. Are you proud of Harriet here? I'm proud of her sentiment. I would encourage her efforts. I actually found that line a little ham-handed, just because it felt like a moment of where she's almost staring into the camera and winking at the audience in terms of expressing a, a, a expressing a particular value. Um, I understand the sentiment, though, and I'm fully in support of what she's trying to do. Going to be tough with this show to get a line of the episode that's not at least 10% ham-handed. Yeah, just going to tell you about the writing. That's how they run. A little yeah. tough here. <laughs> even even good lines are like 20% ham-handed. You, you, can, I mean, you can express the sentiment without literally telling me it. She was expressing the sentiment with by working around the margins, and I was already on the same page. So by the time she built up to that line, it's like, dude, I know, you've already said it like three times, I'm with you. But as you said, ham-handed is kind of how the show runs to a certain degree. During this whole exchange, we're getting a first look at Harriet's turn. She's eating grapes, but every other one, it seems like if she blows on it, it turns into glass. And then she throws it on the ground and it shatters. What, um, is, it, is it glass or is it ice? Because we've seen she's the one we've seen before with like frozen powers before, right? She's the one that um, I am starting to think that maybe it was glass only because um, Penance says that she has to clean the shards up afterwards. If it was ice, it would just melt. First, first of the penance lines I found annoying because it completely diluted the dramatic, powerful, you know, societal values effect of the scene to just have her make that little weird joke at the end, just take uh, away from it entirely. Spencer, I'm gonna disappoint you here. The little cutesy joke to wrap up a otherwise relatively impactful exchange is the go-to for this show. You're gonna it, get this at least I twice an episode. Hate it. I don't like it, dude. You know this. <laughs> It, we got another one when Penance was talking to Augustus later. We'll get to I it. Know, she does the same thing. It's Penance's role. It's Penance's role to, t- to offer a, a little pithy, sarcastic comment at the end of every scene. You're diluting your scenes. Stop doing that. Mm, Penance hater right here. At least you, at least you like, are on that island, right? At least you established it. I mean, you were episode one. Not in on Penn, it's the character. So I appreciate that from you. We've got flags. We've got t-shirts. It's all cause. Cut to Amalia's office, and Amalia's not there. Bonfire Annie is sitting in her chair. Quote, so this is what we can expect? A leader who does not lead? Horatio is there, and he asks Bonfire if she wants the job. Bonfire, quote, she does have the nicest room. You know, True should have been there. I've shown more respect for Mary, and I'm her kidnapper. Horatio, quote, Amalia misses the point of things often as not. But if that chair is warm when she gets back, she'll know why. From Bonfire Annie, you don't think I can best her? From Horatio, I don't think you want her job. So this is the danger, I think, of bringing in somebody like a Bonfire Annie. Hey, 
everybody were out there running businesses, you know, you, when you have like the number one target, like that person, you're like, oh God, if we could just get them here, it's likely that you're going to run into this problem, which is when you get the most talent, they might want to take over. Like that's yeah. the problem with Bonfire Annie here. Right. She's been there 12 minutes and she already wants the top job. And this is what we already saw with her associations with the bigger king is that she doesn't have like a five-year plan. Her plan is I go in, I take out the CEO and I become the CEO. That's yeah. what she does. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a danger of bringing her in for sure. I mean, she's she is. I mean, she probably doesn't even know where the bathroom is at this point. She's already yeah. like sitting in Amalia's chair talking about being the being the boss. Though I think uh, Doctor Cousins kind of rightfully calls her out that she wants the power. She doesn't want any of the responsibility. She doesn't no, want the obligations that come with this job. All right, question for you, since it's now come up hypothetical. All of the people we know at the orphanage, who would you give the top job to? Not um, as much as I like Amalia and as much as she's probably the most adept at many of the things the orphanage needs to do. She's a shit administrator who spends no time with her charges and which she kind of acknowledges in this episode, which is a good scene. So I'm, I, I, as much as I wouldn't want a character like Penance to do it just because she's pardon the phrase, not hard enough really for the position, I would say. They need someone who's, who's much more of a civilian to really handle it, rather than somebody who's a rough-and-tumble warrior in the field. I'm not really sure who that is yet, though. See, they have a dearth of talent. That's why I asked the question. Is because I think Amalia is the best one for the job right now, and she's not good for the job, right? But they don't have anybody else. I mean, I would say Horatio, but I don't think he's really connected I, with the orphanage that way. He's more of like a just a, an associate kind of. He, he has the right temperament, and he has the right breadth of perspective, but he absolutely doesn't want the job. And so that, that already undermines him. You got to have somebody that at least wants to be there. And that's definitely not Cousins. Cousins exists to be on the periphery. I think that's where he's much more comfortable to be. So yeah. other than that, we don't have anybody. Maybe, yeah. maybe after this episode, uh, Harriet, maybe after this episode, Harriet, she shows some legitimate spark and initiative in terms of putting, putting together some plans on her own this episode. Yeah. She's a, she's a two year cult and this is the Kentucky Derby, right? Uh, at she's one got person, potential. One person's going to get that reference, but she's not quite ready for it, but she does have potential. Um, I agree. Um, timely, too. Kentucky Derby just this past weekend. Shout I appreciate, out Bob Baffert. I, I appreciate your references, man. I've watched it enough to get the jokes. They point out that the Beggar King sent a wreath, apparently. The, so the Beggar King sent a wreath, but apparently there was a big one that wasn't signed. Just pocket that. Horatio, quote, I still don't see how... She's talking to He's talking about Bonfire Annie. I still don't see how you can go from working formality to being here with Amalia. Bonfire, you really think they're that different? Potential line of the episode. It gets interrupted when your favorite character, Penance, shows up. And then, boom, right on top of that, here comes Amalia. She comes in, looks looks like the same dress, right? Same dress from the bar? Same Looks like the same dress, yeah. Okay. Um, so she probably just left the violin player, I'm guessing. Uh, I will like to say, I'm going to go through, obviously go through the recap. Does look like Amalia holds her liquor like unreasonably well. Like she just seems like, no, she just like, how do you show me a character? This doesn't make any sense to me. How do you show me a character who's just getting sloshed midday? Nice, nice, good day drunk. Mm-hmm. And then just, just shows up and is completely like normal. Like no, nothing happened. And again, this episode loves to do everything on the same day. This show, every, everything you see in an episode always happens in the same day. So everything we see here was in the same 24-hour period. So like you said, that scene with her getting drunk was like an hour ago. It was not long. It was very much occurring in the same period. 
I mean, at this point, you'd smell her coming ten, from, from 10 yards away just from the sheer amount of liquor that was poured under dress when she was at the bar. You would think, yeah, but she just shows, it's, it's just like inconsistency, I'm putting it out. But anyway, when she comes in, she says, um, I hope you're not done discussing my faults, Amalia. Quote, come on, Penance, Jesus awaits. Um, uh, Penance uh, says, quote, he already knows that I, what I was going to say, and I'll add a few Hail Marys in for that later little little joke there that Spencer loves. Penance, huh? Frank Mundy will owe himself a few. <laughs> owe a few himself, poor man. So she's basically saying Frank Mundy's pissed at you too. Mm-hmm. Amalia interrupts and points out that Malady didn't show up at the funeral. Or did she? Bonfire <laughs> mocks the idea that Malady would show up. Horatio says it would be madness to show up, not her kind of madness. So I'm going to pause right there because Horatio <laughs> seems to think that Malady is at least somewhat strategic, right? What? Even By even saying that, saying it's it's madness, but not her type of madness, he seems to indicate that Malady is some sort of, has, has a strategic bone in her body. He's highlighting what may be an inherent inconsistency in Malady and how the show wants to portray her madness because... The scene where he was with her, she was acting strategically. She was perfectly yeah. lucid in terms of interacting with him. A lot of the other scenes that we see of her, even this episode where she's seemingly alone or with just one other person, she's the very much more theatrical kind of madness. Agreed. Pretty nuts this episode. Ba- bad malady episode. M- must have missed her meds before episode four. Mm. Um, Pennant shows up. Uh, well, Pennant points out that the papers are blaming malady, and maybe they should. Uh, Amalia reiterates that she thought Malady would show up. I think I think what we're trying, what the show is trying to force feed into you, Spencer, is that Amalia's got a little bit of a better grip on Malady than everybody else, right? Because Malady did show up to the funeral, or at least she said she did. <laughs> she did, and I'm. We're going to get to that scene to debate whether that happened or not, but she at least said that she did. Like you said, Amalia seemed to absolutely believe in her core that she was there and hiding to some degree. So kudos, she called that one right. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're supposed. I mean, you know, and they they have the shared history. Obviously, they knew they were they knew each other when they were kids. They speak to each other with an odd familiarity. So it seems to me that like you know they're trying to say that Amalia has a better read on Malady than everybody else. As we see later in this episode, did they? Did well, they actually have any shared history? Yeah, Did they actually have any background? Well, I don't know anymore. Theory time, theory time. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. We'll, we'll get there. Um, Horatio asks why uh, why she didn't, and Amalia ignores the question. So basically, like, Horatio is saying, why didn't you go? And Amalia ignores the question. Says the man who attacked her is Nicholas Perbell. Bonfire says he's called Odium. That's his that's street name, Odium. Mm-hmm. Amalia points out, He's not called that by his grandmother, whose house he is convalescing at, if her intel is correct. So, Spencer, I will award you a point. I steered you wrong there. That man is alive, and you said uh, you suspected he would be alive because they introduced this guy who is seemingly somewhat of a big deal in the Beggar King's operation, and uh, it would be weird to kill him off in one episode, so kudos to you. It's one of the great joys of fantasy. You don't have to be realistic. You can do things that are fun. You can keep characters that are great. It doesn't have... That's one of the great treasures of fantasy. It doesn't have to be bound strictly by reality. You can go beyond it. And keeping this character alive longer is more fun. Yeah, so he's alive. But I will say, very. I'm not even scoring that. He lost the first fight. We're not in the (laughs) middle of rounds. We're not in the middle of rounds. Lost the first fight. Amalia's got the belt. Mm-hmm. Um, while they're talking, Amalia has a rippling, and uh, we see she's in a very nice library room, and it sounds like she is listening to Mass and talk to her about a quote casualty of war. I'm gonna get to her ripplings here in a second. Uh, Amalia <laughs> says she needs it. Yeah, I, I've I've got some comments there. Amalia says she needs a bath, and that they need to get Lucy. 
they're going to start naming suspects. Penance points out that Lucy is broken up worse than the rest of the girls about what happened to Mary. And Amalia says that's why she needs to work. So here's here's the Amalia management technique, right? Mm-hmm. You go to Amalia and you say, hey, my, my grandma died. And Molly's going to say, all right, well, you need to get to work. It's good for you. Like that's yeah. the management style. It works, works, for- works for some people, but, but not necessarily great on the whole. Yeah, I mean, it could be a very effective tactic to, you know, work to keep your mind off things. Actually, one of the treatments for PTSD is actually get somebody back in the field under controlled conditions faster kind of thing. Immersion therapy? Yeah, to a certain degree, it can work. But that's that's the kind of thing, is that these kind of things need to be tailored to the individual, and Amalia does not give a shit about what the individual needs. As Amalia walks out, she tells Bonfire to make herself comfortable. So, you know, shout out to Horatio for calling that Amalia's not really going to like that Bonfire's sitting in her chair. In the hallway, we get some West Wing action, walking and talking, and everybody is being funny. Uh, we get um, basically the Penance and Amalia impersonating each other. We start and, off with... Go ahead. And I liked it, because it was tonally consistent. That's my objection to Penance, is that she's taking the piss out of a scene that's under a different emotional level. This is fine. This builds from that into an interesting moment. That's my main objection to a lot of what Penance does. So what you, what you're saying is that the when they're doing the walking and talking and they're they're kind of like the quick beats and funny lines, as long as that's in the middle of a conversation and it's kind of set. Organic. Yeah, then you're cool with it. It's when Penance kind of just like fumbles, shows up, funny line, and boom, we're out. That's what you don't and particularly when she does that in a scene that isn't fitting that kind of, you know, emotion or that kind of tone. It's almost the equivalent of someone, you know, you, you ever met that kind of person of where they can't tolerate like a sad moment or a down moment? They feel the need to immediately make a joke when they're confronted yes. by it. Mm-hmm. That's what she's doing and it annoys me. Amalia starts off by imitating Penance's Bruges accent. Bruges is the right word, right? I'm pronouncing that right. That's a Irish, Scottish, Bruges. Br- That's what Brogue. she's got. Brogue. Brogue. There you go. Brogue. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Bruges in Belgium. <laughs> Fix that in post, everybody. Let's go back. Uh, Brug accent. Um, saying Amalia um, should have gone to the funeral. She's setting a bad example for the girls. This is Amalia talking in the tone of penance. Penance, now talking in the tone of Amalia, says, But I'm so tough and mean, and I hate sentiment, and also people and myself. Amalia, still imitating penance, says, Mary trusted you and you failed her. Whoop, penance stops conversation there because she's concerned that Amalia actually thinks that she failed Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, Amalia points out that they Amalia does not want to engage in that. that was hitting a little close to home there, so Amalia immediately moves on. Points out that the longer they wait to find a killer, the harder harder it'll be to find them. So, um, a little confusing there for for folks. I mean, if you if you're kind of just casually paying attention, you might think they have the killer. That Mundy shot him right in the head. What I think Amalia is driving at here is someone planted the that man guy behind there. the man. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Who who is the one who? who sort of orchestrated that guy being there at that time to shoot Mary. That's what she's after. And yeah, and I'm completely there with her that this is something that we actively need to investigate, that there is a time for grief. And right now, sadly, I'm not in a position where that can really happen with me. I need to be the one that's actually, you know, being responsible and investigating this jazz. And now we are going to transition to a series (laughs) of statements that are extremely interesting I can't tell if I'm either reading too much into them or reading the exact amount that I should be into them. But it seems to me that they're they're really tipping. Like if, you, if you're playing five card poker here, they just tipped like two cards mm-hmm. at you. Oh, yeah. It, it's about 40% of the hand here that we're getting on Amalia and her turn and Amalia's past and exactly who she is, et cetera, et cetera. 
So Pennant starts, true, I can't imagine how many funerals you've been to. Amalia cuts her off and says, none. We don't do that when I'm from. When? We don't Bitch, when what, what? I'm from. When? What did you say, Amalia? Say that again. Yeah, um, I rewound it. I looked at the closed captioning. That's what she said. I, we don't do I, that yeah. when I'm from. We don't have enough time and we don't have enough ground. This is this is now a uh, kickback to penance. You know better than anyone pain does when you don't make time for it. Boop, back to Amalia. All time does is run out. I was left here completely alone with nothing but a mission I was never actually given. No orders, no objective. They left me here and they fucked right off. Maybe they died, who cares? But I'm here where a woman can be killed for having a voice which will be the world's fucking epitaph if I can't do something other than make it worse. <gasps> dude, dude, <gasps> I've got to <gasps> applaud you. Your theorizing, sir, appears to have had a massive amount of jet fuel injected into its fire. Just... I would lo I'd love to tell you that I'm such, a, I'm such an insider and I'm such a media mogul <laughs> that I had all of the advanced screeners from the show and that they gave me this and that I made the, the theory based on it and now it's just coming. No, I read it on reddit and i brought it here because i thought it was good i thought it made sense if you didn't listen to episode three or you didn't quite get because we do go long you didn't quite get to the end basically the theory is that the alien spaceship that we saw in episode one mm -hmm. that was it looked like it was crashing and it looked like there were little things coming off of it and were hitting people these were the people who ended up being touched we speculated at the time oh that's that's the thing that gave them the power what i was theorizing is that these are actually aliens that were abandoning ship and jumping into people and that the alien that jumped into amalia was jumping into a lifeless body and so amalia is actually now an alien in in a human body that is from that ship that we saw and i'm not i'm not saying that that theory is right here but i am saying that Amalia not being human is and, and is from another world is just about the only way I can explain this series of dialogue. She's I don't either, know how else to explain it. Well, she's either from another world or from another time or both, but she is not the woman that we see before her cloaked in the manner that she is. There is something behind the face, as they've often been suggesting and hinting at over this show. I don't know whether this is true for all of them to a lesser degree. Like you said, whether they all certainly have, you know, thetans infesting them in some manner. But at least for Amalia, this seems almost confirmed. It's pretty much confirmed. And very important, it seems that it's just a commonly known thing between her and Penance. She just speaks about it openly. So Penance seems to know that Amalia is just some other type of being. Not, not even just Penance, too. We also see it with the later scene with Lucy. This appears to be common knowledge among the, among the orphanage, at least. Yeah, that she's just not like... It's a weird... I'll tell you this. It's a very weird way to give this to us because we pay super attention because we're doing this podcast and we want to make sure that we're responsible about it when, and we want to make sure we're supplying you with the best possible knowledge about the episode that we watched etc etc i think a casual fan might just miss that scene and might not even know that they just had this massive reveal here in this series of dialogue between these two characters do you feel like this show skipped like its first three episodes or something? Like, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> like there, there was a lot of buildup that accidentally just got left on the editing room floor and they just started episode four and like, oh, we can't fix it now. They'll adjust. It's like, I, yeah, I just feel like there was a better, I'm like, I'm look, I, I like the reveal because I mean, it's, a, it's very interesting. It's much more interesting than, than, than if this was not the case, but like. 
It's a weird way to tell us, man. It's a very weird way. It's a fun reveal. It's an interesting twist. It puts a fun new spin on the character. I'm all there with it. But I'm with you that this show has the weirdest way of reaching these points or how they reveal them. This is how they choose to go about this. I'm I'm with it enough just because it's such a fascinating twist and such a fascinating direction to go with. Yeah. Anything else on that scene? Is it Matt, is it Matt, is the, it's the biggest scene of the episode. It's the biggest scene of the episode. We, keep, we come back to it in a few other moments, but you referenced it. I want to hit you before we go too far away from it. Amalia's Ripplings. You want to talk about that now or later? Uh, later. Um, I, I have a specific section I want to, and I think I, I known you long enough. I think we're on the same page on how we're going to talk about that. I know already what you're going to say, and I'm with you for it. Pick your moment. Pennant says they had a chance to remember the goodness of Mary, <clears throat> not just the fact she was taking. She seems to be mansplaining funerals to, to Amalia here. <laughs> well, she hasn't been to any. She doesn't know how they work. Amalia takes issue with the word taken, rightfully so. She says she was murdered. She wasn't taken. And they need to start thinking about how to set up the man with the gun who wasn't at the park. Mm-hmm. Who wasn't at the park? Penitz. Penitz asks if she means one of them. Amalia, well, I know it wasn't me. So Amalia seems to think, <clears throat> well, somebody had inside knowledge that Mary was going to be there. And, and who knew that Mary was going to be there? Well, it was us here at the orphanage. And I know it wasn't me. So let's start trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Cut to the workshop. And Primrose is very patiently walking around. And she hears a very frustrated Myrtle. She asks Myrtle if she wants to talk. <laughs> I don't even know why you would bother asking that to Myrtle. She's a nice girl. <laughs> Primrose is nice. Myrtle is crying. She's made a draw. Myrtle has made a drawing and Primrose tries multiple drawings and Primrose tries to piece them together. It's a struggle for sure. I mean, it's a very like difficult situation here between Primrose and Myrtle because she's trying to like Myrtle clearly wants to say something. Like this is the first time we've ever seen Myrtle be like, I have to explain something. And we Mm -hmm. see just how difficult it is. So Myrtle, one of the worst turns, just going to throw that out there. Well, very, very bad turn. It has a perk, as we learned in this episode. We assumed it was just the Tower of Babel embodied in one person. But we've kind of, I didn't really focus on the idea that not only is she jabbering, she's also understanding. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> because let's, let's remember that um, I pointed out that during Mary's song, that the, the subtitles, subtitles often, they will tip their hand in shows mm-hmm. and tell you a little <laughs> bit more um, in, in this, through the subtitles. And it said, Singing in a foreign language. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You're you so smart to focus on that. And now it seems that Myrtle, who understands all foreign languages, understood what she said. Because that's what they pieced together as Primrose and her are doing this this little bit of charades. What, uh, she pieces together that, that Myrtle heard and understood Mary's song. And now they just have to figure out how Myrtle can express that and explain it to, to everyone. And this branches, because uh, I think it's Harriet walks in during this scene, this branches in with the assignment that uh, Penance gave her earlier, basically, you know, cataloging all of the new touch that have arrived at the orphanage, is that now she's got a means of both connecting that together and also dealing with her crimes or issues or whatever else, but also using the fact that it's such an incredibly, almost overly diverse bunch to in her favor in terms of trying to tr- desperately translate the babble that is coming out of Myrtle. Exactly. So what the, the, the plan here is for Harriet to tap into Anil's classmates and all the folks that... Um, and all the touch that arrived and everything and else. He knows all the touch that arrived and bring everybody together and basically just have a big room where Myrtle talks and they all just sort of piece it all together. And then we get that scene later. Mm-hmm. Cut to the police station and a lady named Boyle is there to speak with Inspector Mundy. Some other guy gives her crap. She brushes him off but pointed out he reeks of gin. 
Uh, I think we're meant to take from this scene that it's not easy being a female reporter in 1899. I think it's just a little body punch to, to let, make sure you understand that. Mm-hmm. She, the guy even, go ahead. She may also be a member of the temperance movement. That was a, a key, another aspect of women's empowerment during that period too. Possible, but I think the main focus here is that he's leering over her. He's uncomfortably in her personal space. He's dismissing her and her profession. Kind of sucks to be an investigative journalist a la 1890s. I'm going to give a little credit to Boyle here. Um, she might be a part of the temperance movement, but pointing out that somebody smells like gin in the morning, um, not necessarily a temperance movement. Just, just be like a normal person. Could be. <laughs> was, was this the same detective that was saying, I've got to go drink my breakfast or whatever? Also drink my lunch. I think it was the same guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the guy even makes some comment about how she's there to take, quote, their jobs. Uh, you know, obviously. Mm-hmm. Fuck took her jobs. Yeah. Uh, pardon my French there. Uh, she's asking why the purists from Mary's funeral are being detained. Then she, uh, it just makes me laugh that they detain these people. Then she and another person standing there throw out the idea that Mary's death might have been Malady's doing. And Mundy replies, that story has been told. Boyle says she disagrees, but then says she thinks there's something maybe much larger at work than just one maniac. So I think what we're meant to take from this scene is that Boyle's on the case, right? She's trying to piece this all together from afar. Boils on the case, but she went into this building representing that she already had some information. She has Jack at this point. She's got she is yeah. fishing. She, yeah, now she's, she's fishing. She's looking to find out more. She's one of the few journalists in town that's trying to investigate this from a, a more complete angle or even from the touch perspective. But she's kind of fronting to Mundy when she's indicating, I can help you. It's like, no, no, no. You're looking to get a scoop from me right now. Talk to me when you actually find anything. Sure, yeah. And Mundy sniffs that out uh, very well. But I would like to say that I don't think this is the type of show that introduces somebody who's asking questions who's not later going to get answers, right? Chekhov's gun, yes. Mundy asks her, yeah, yeah, you you covered all that. Mundy then goes into the room with the two guys who heck, I love this scene, by the way. Just (laughs) shout out Frank Mundy. Give me a t-shirt. Put him on a t-shirt. Monday stands everywhere. Monday says they're going to put them in jail. Uh, and they're like, well, you can't put me in jail for just talking and expressing my opinion. Um, I, which that phrase, expressing my opinion. I mean, you were being jackasses. But nonetheless, it's like, you can't really put him in jail for that. Monday says, I'm not putting you in jail for that. I'm going to put you in jail for poli- uh, assaulting a police officer as he starts rolling up his cuffs. The larger the two guy gets the point. Mm. Feeling himself. Yeah. Thinks he's pretty good. I'll take that invitation. To cuffs. Let me do that. I've been around the to, block. Let me stand up. I'm gonna. I'm gonna fight here. Because Mon- Mundy's not a huge dude. Most Little of the guy. scenes. Most of the scenes that he's in, people are the guys that he's with are taller than Mundy. So this, this guy, guy towers over him. This guy's much bigger, younger. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, very confident until the other police officer says, "Enter the ape," and this scares the sand hell out of both of these guys because apparently Mundy used to be a boxer called the Ape. The East End Ape. That's a great what? name. That's a great name. the best. Money used to be a street boxer. This is all, this is a what? great revelation. And it almost kind of fits the physicality of Mundy. Mundy looks like that kind of wiry guy that is just far stronger and tougher than they have any right to be. He's just he's not bulky. He's not he's not a tall he's not a tall, massive, intimidating dude. But he has that kind of look of just sinewy strength that'll beat you into burger. It was so great, too, because the guy goes, whoa, dude, we're done. I'm out. Like, so he was such a good, the, the East End 8 was such a good box. That's what I want. Frank Mundy's, like, silhouette East End 8. <laughs> the, the, Somebody the, give me the t-shirt. Let's do it. The, 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 you know, like the classic little, uh, it, with the two or, fist cuffs up. Boxing pose, yes. <laughs> but he apparently was so good that he's, I mean, that guy, that guy wants no part of him. And they immediately start talking because yeah. that scares them. Um, they say they were given the address. 
um, and basically told to go there and heckle. And they hand over the note it was written on, and it sure looks to me like it's Hugo Swain's stationery that we saw in the last episode. Now, and if Frank was a little bit less pissed and a little bit less on tilt, he might have picked up that is not the Swan House logo. We've already seen it. He's already seen it. That's just a swan. But he doesn't notice the details right right then and there. Well, it's yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's not it's not his stationery, but yes. it, it just that's it, that's why I kind of what it, what else you looks think like right now? What, it's a swan. Like it's a swan on a business card. You're gonna think something. Cut to the orphanage, and Lucy is sort of creeping around. She finally gets into the room with a bunch of folks. It includes Amalia, Horatio, Bonfire, and Penance, among others. And they're doing a little brainstorming. Um, I like this little little session here with the employees. Amalia's doing some decent management here. Basically yeah. what they're doing is they're listing off possible suspects and they're just kind of brainstorming. <laughs> I, Horatio I, starts... Go ahead. I, I dispute some of the suspects that they name on this list, but I fully endorse their, the, the brainstorming session they're engaged in. <laughs> well, well, Spencer, don't you, don't you realize what's happening here? This is... This is they're, this is the writing staff making sure that you understand the cast. This is this is oh, them ticking mm. through the main cast members and just making sure that we all remember them and we all know who they are and we all know gotcha. who's important. That, to me, That's is what this is. That's the only justification for some of the people on this list. But yes, Absolutely. That's the only reason why, because it doesn't make sense who's on this list. It's, it's just them reminding us all who's important. Right. So Horatio starts with Malady. Amalia is basically, I'm going to paraphrase Amalia. Eh, maybe. Because um, um, Amalia is rightfully focusing on the key information they have is who the assassin is. This guy got out of prison to commit this crime. That's a hell of a useful data point to deduce who did this. And sure. Malady does not have that kind of pull. But she doesn't dismiss it outright either. Um, it's unlikely, but sure. Horatio says Gilbert Masson and in jumps Lucy. Quote, what? Lord Masson? The great white hunter? He's a piece of work. The chums at the factory are talking about a strike because he pays a pittance and it's dangerous. It's bombs and the like they are handling. She goes on to say he'd rather snuff you out, put you on your wall, than pay you enough to feed your kids. Spencer, do you think this is a fair representation? Look, I'm going to tell you this right now. You put me in 1899 London. You make this a democracy. Lord Masson's on the ticket. I don't think I'm voting for him, but I'm not quite sure this is a fair representation of Lord Masson. I don't think it is. I think that he would almost view it as below him to be that kind of brutal to his workers kind of yeah. thing or be that kind of bastard. It would not be in fitting with his polite standing in society. There's an aspect of charity that's required of it. It's part of his duty, the great white burden kind of jazz. What this felt like, and I didn't even fully understand it then, and now I, with later scenes yeah. I have better mm-hmm. stand of it, is that this is her fronting. This is her putting on, oh, Masson, he's a yeah. bastard. I'd never work for him. Yeah, he's yeah, an yeah. absolute prick. And we see that later. She even apologizes. Up, oh, sorry, I went political. Ha ha ha. She's putting on an act. Uh, I mean, yeah, obviously. I mean, the, the show is a little on the nose with some of this stuff. Yes. But yeah, it's, she, she's a little excited to tell you, um, you totally know, about how bad pocket. Lord Masson is. But I just wanted to point out. I mean, that that is what they're doing with the scene. But I did also want to point out, not a fair representation of Masson. While he's a son of a bitch, he's not that son of a bitch. In the words of Horatio, mm-hmm. uh, paraphrased. Uh, Lucy then apologized for getting all political. As you pointed out, Horatio moves on to the Beggar King. He points out that they have the address for, you know, one of the main guys. And Bonfire volunteers to go see him. Unless, of course, Amalia wants a rematch. Amalia then says she's going to see Lord Masson. And then clarifies that she's definitely going because she's seen it. Now we will have the conversation. Okay. All right. Here's my problem. 
um, we are we're already on a piece, but I just want to explain it to our to our listeners. So here's the frustration that we're having mm-hmm. is that Amalia's turn, or at least part of her turn, seemed to be that she could see the future. But the problem is when you see the future and it's so immediate and it's a future where you in the immediately preceding that are given choices, right? Mm-hmm. Then it it's almost the tail wagging the dog. I'm not quite sure it's the future as much as now Amalia is choosing to make that the reality because she has seen it. She could very easily go see Dunderhead with the with the damn chain at this point. But because she's had the rippling, she says, oh no, I have to go there, which makes, makes me question that she's really seeing the future in as much as getting suggestions for what she should do. Yeah, she's not seeing the future. She's just got an in, she has, an, she has, she has a, a dedicated phone to the writers to be directed where the plot needs her to go. It, it, at any point, she, she at one point told us that, you know, I can't avoid the future. It just happens kind of thing. Like I said, I think that was part of her conversation. You very much could have avoided this one, Amalia. If, very if much you, so. If you just stay <laughs> home, it doesn't happen. That's yeah. how that goes. He's not going to come to you and bring his house with him. And here's here's my problem is that if you were hanging this would she would be an impossible hang because you'd be hanging out with Amalia and you'd be like, All right, well, you know, where do you want to go to dinner? And she'd be like, Chinese, I've already seen it. Yeah. And you're like, Well, fuck, I guess we have to go to Chinese now. Like, that's the that's how preposterous <laughs> it can get. Because when she has this rippling and she's she's presented choices, but she says, Oh, well, I've already seen it, so I have to choose B. Man, she would so abuse that in situations about where she would want to go out to eat. She didn't actually see Chinese. She's just saying she saw Chinese, so we have to go eat Chinese now. This is this oh, is what you and, absolutely. I would abuse the hell out of this, but I mean, it just it, if I was in that room and Amalia is like, "Well, I'm going to see Lord Masson because I've already seen it," the, the eye roll out of me oh, about dude. this turn. I'd be like, "Are you kidding me? Like this is not a real thing." What? And I want the show to almost call her out on this at some point. Is this just being a religious zealot's way of interpreting what's happening rather than necessarily how her abilities work? Because the show almost just tongue-in-cheek even comments on it here. Is that I think it's but at the end of the scene is like, oh, you should bring Desiree, obviously, because you're going to talk to Lord Masson. And she even says, you know, I should, but I don't. And then the scene just ends. It's like, is this the show commenting on the fact this doesn't make sense? Maybe. Amalia is then asking for Rippling told her if Masson killed Mary. She says the Ripplings tell her she can't plan her own day. So it sure seems like she's planning her own day. Um, but they aren't treasure maps. Penance then pushes Mary to commit to not attacking Masson, uh, even if he admits he did it, which <laughs> I know not a strong Penance episode for you. Pretty good point here from Penance. What? I would I would probably have made this caveat too. Like, okay, what? you're going to go see Masson. That's fine. Uh, how about you not knock his head off if he says he did it? I actually fully endorse and really appreciate that they've got a nonviolent pacifistic character on this show. That's a fun that's a fun aspect to add into this, and I really actually appreciate that she keeps on that. I would never say that when she's <laughs> serving as kind of a wet blanket, it applies to that kind of philosophy of hers. It is well meant and it's well carried out, and it's honestly good advice in most of the scenes that they're in. Yeah, Penance goes on to she actually justifies this too. She goes on to make a point that the the touched are hated right now, and they can't really yeah. lash out over mean. this thing with Mary. It's 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 going to be a problem. Bonfire Annie even goes on to agree with that sentiment. Horatio moves on to Augustus Bidlow. This is where the list gets stupid. And Penance <laughs> Penance prompt. Why why this is just hey remember hey, hey everybody remember the Augustus dude, we're going to see him in a minute <laughs> yeah Penance promptly says they should kill him so then we get the sort of like childish like oh I hate him he, you know he he put gum in my hair 
Uh, Lucy speaks up, mentioning how horrible Augustus was to penance during the party. Lavinia threw. She almost took her gloves off. It, uh, it mentioned that Amalia did tell. Um, they mentioned that Amalia did tell Lavinia that Mary was going to be at the park. A point that me and you recognized, by the way. We, we, mm-hmm. we recognized that that was an important piece of information that was conveyed. Lucy stands up for Lavinia a bit, says she's a bit puckered, but she's the reason they have the orphanage in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right. Horatio then tells them, Horatio kind of jumps in and says, well, look, um, the Bidlows were the family who discovered me. They took me over from Jamaica to London. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a little time with them, I almost swam back. <laughs> he says that while Miss Bidlow does some good things, he, he, he understands that, doesn't mm-hmm. mean that she's their friend. I thought the phrasing was interested interesting because he very much is is putting that putting that circle around the touched our friend you know he's one of the touched it doesn't mean that she's our friend so it's a us versus them thing in the way horatio is talking here it's subtle but it's there it's subtle it's there it's interesting that horatio's in the room right now horatio's coordinating with senior leadership as much as i commented earlier that he seems by his nature to want to be an outsider he's there in the moment helping them plan future operations For seems sure. like he's come on board a little bit Penance then rails against Augustus some more, and Amalia tells her, well, it's high time you tell him yourself. Penance pushes back on this, but, you know, not a lot to push back on it, obviously. I mean, first off, if you, it doesn't make sense that you're investigating Augustus, but if you're going to, it makes sense that Penance would go talk to him. Uh, two, two comments on this scene. I'm curious about your thoughts on One, the show really wants to set up what Augustus did is, like, horrible and unforgivable. Did you see it as extreme as the show wants us to see it? Um, I think you, I think if you rewind the tape, uh, so I'm going to give you an answer, but it's an OG answer. I codified this in a previous episode you did. I because I thought it, it was, I thought it was so preposterous that she was crying over it because I didn't feel like it was that much of a big deal. I mean, was he rude? Yes. yes. But was he like, did he walk up and say like, you know, F your mother and like, you should burn in hell? No, of course it wasn't over the top. It was basically, Hey, you know, we, we talked, I enjoyed the conversation, but I got to go talk to my, I, he did say my real friends, which was a little tough, but even that is not the worst thing in the world. So it's a very good point from you, Spencer. Yeah. I just want, I wanted to address that because they really set up that he needs to walk his few miles in the desert to really seek forgiveness for what occurred. Yeah, it's I saw unbelievable. His, yeah. Whereas it's, I said, yeah. he was certainly rude and he was rude to a person that really is not in an emotional position to really deal with that, particularly within the, in the, in the environment that she was at the time. And that rightfully should be, you know, he rightfully should apologize and seek forgiveness for that. But they take like what he did as being almost as bad as shooting six people in an opera. And that's like, wow, okay. I didn't really see it in that light. All right. Yeah. I feel like the reasonable conversation, if they, we were all being reasonable here, it would be penance would say, Hey, what was the deal with that? And he goes, sorry. I had a tough conversation with my sister. I, I was having a bad day. I'm sorry about that. And she goes, Oh yeah, no big deal. That's what that should be. That's the conversation between two adults. Instead, Penance goes into this like a spurned five-year-old to a certain degree. Now, she has right, particularly given where, where she was and being already an outsider and everybody looking down on her, it added to what was already a very uncomfortable moment for her and it factors in that way. I, particularly also since it's the first time they met each other, too, it... She acts like they dated for like six months and broke up. That's what she acts like. It's a weird run. Question number two. Of the people on this list, who do you think is a legitimate call? Honestly, from the evidence that they have as to who is the the man who hired the gun. 
<laughs> the, man, the one man not on the list is the guy who hired the fucking gun, I think. I mean, I'm going to go with Hugo if I have to choose somebody. Um, and it's interesting that they, they seem to name everybody on the cast except for him. But in the experiment that you're giving me, of the people on the list, given the evidence that we have, um, I would say it, it's probably mo uh, my vote would be for for probably um, Malady, maybe. For, for me, get the for me, I, mean, for, me, for me, the main data point they have is that somebody got this guy out of prison. A guy who murdered six members of society in an opera. That's not an easy get. That's not an easy thing that can just happen without there being an all-points bulletin and cops constantly roaming, roaming the streets looking for him, which there weren't. So that implies political connections and means to me that Lord Mass and Lavinia are the only reasonable choices, which makes Lavinia a very f interesting choice, logical choice that she's on the list. But it seems almost too logical that she is. It's like they're so quick to turn on her. They're so quick to see her as a potential murderer and adversary that I almost found it jarring. See, that's the thing. Like, I feel like they're I feel like they're setting you up for a curve. I think we're all supposed to think it's been it was Lavinia. I am. I'm going to I'm going to get to it. But. I'm seeing Hugo sprinkled everywhere. That's what I'm seeing. Um, <laughs> Hugo sprinkles are all over this Sunday. That's what I'm seeing. Um, ready to move on to the next scene? Oh, my God. My girl Desiree barges in. My favorite character, Desiree. She barges in to tell Horatio he's got some patience. Um, they ask how she's doing. Um, good mom that she is. Uh, her first answer is about how her son's doing. Uh, then she says she doesn't really, uh, she says she just, you know, she's bummed out and she's not feeling good. She does say, I'm keeping my chins up. Um, love the self-effacing humor there from my girl Desiree. I, that may be one of my favorite lines. The whole, I'm keeping my chins up. Sometimes pretending you feel good makes you feel better. Trust me. I like that line. I really like this character too. She's awesome. Horatio leaves to go look for it, look after the patients. Then they ask Amalia, shouldn't you take Desiree with you to Masson's? Of fucking course she should. All caps in my notes. We covered this. It's it's this weird tail wagging the dog thing that's going on. It's it's mm -hmm. frustrating. It's good Molly says I should, but I don't. Again, very strange. Um, anything else here? That borders. I said that borders on self-aware. That's another moment of we almost imagine the character looking into the camera and winking, kind of thing, just because of how inherently illogical her ability seems to be. But that's how they're presenting it so far. We'll see if they ever second guess it. Cut to Hugo, who seems to be playing chess <clears throat> in a gentleman's club with cheese pieces. Um, seems fun, honestly. Yeah, I would totally play that. And like a bat out of hell, Frank Mundy storms in, snatches up Hugo, drives him into another room, throws him over a pool table, says, you've been mixing with the purists, stirring them up. Do you want to scare the touch so you could tell him that you were the only, you you was the only thing to, like, you were the only savior, basically. You're the only one that could save them. Um, Hugo then asks who the purists are, so seemingly jarred, which gives Mundy some pause. He Mundy pulls out the note that we saw, and like you pointed out, Hugo points out it's not his. Uh, he also points out that he's not in the business of personalizing evidence, which I thought was a pretty good point. This is it reminds me of the scene of uh, where you know Catelyn Stark confronts Tyrion over the knife that was used to stab. Ah, very good callback. Yes. Uh, uh, like, why would you arm an assassin with your own blade? That's dumb. That's obvious blowback on me. Why would I do that? I'm not that stupid. And Frank's really kind of stopped by that. It's like, yeah, yeah. I don't really have a response to that. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. What a good comparison. Because it is. I mean, that's basically what Hugo's saying. It's like, I don't like hand out like 
incriminating evidence on my own stationery. That's I'm not doing that. He's totally lying about the what, what are they called again? The pure bloods or whatever else? Purist. Uh, purist. Sorry, I'm going Harry Potter with this. Um, it. I, he's totally. I, I totally picture he's lying about that because it's the same structure of the conversation that he had about the touched earlier on with Augustus, of where. Oh yeah, the who are the touched again? Yeah, they've got these kind of weird abilities, and then we find out five pages later that oh yeah, he totally knows the touched, and he runs his business based on them. I'm kind of suspecting based on framing, it's gonna be the same thing ultimately with the purists. Um, yeah, uh, I agree. Then a butler comes in and asks Hugo if he needs any assistance. He then points out this is a members-only establishment, and Mundy gives him a very firm recommendation to fuck off. <laughs> Hugo agrees, and the butler leaves. Hugo then suggests that maybe someone pointed Mundy at him. It's not secret. Not a secret that Monday, you know, hate. It's not a secret that you hate me, Monday. Like everybody knows this. Maybe, maybe somebody set this whole thing up. Maybe somebody orchestrated this, Monday. Quote: That don't mean you're innocent. Hugo kind of laughs at this and says, "When have I ever?" And then he starts to piece together that they're talking past each other. First of two times that this happens with these characters um, basically going after people that they think might have been involved in Mary's murder. Um, Hugo at first doesn't quite understand that Mundy is saying, hey, I think you murdered Mary. And he starts to piece this together. And he says, uh, basically, I'm not a murderer. Um, and it seems relatively convincing. It seems to convince Mundy about 25%. Um, he says, quote, I have nothing against Mary. Mundy, she was a rival. Ooh, burning line here from Hugo. I think you know she wasn't. Um, oh, good. Good. I mean, Dick. Absolute dick, but good line. Burning line there from Hugo. Hugo then says he would provide Mundy with his whereabouts, but says he was trying to learn more about Amalia, and what he's learned is to, it's a stay away. Good Hugo call. has categorized this as a stay away. I agree. Great read. Great, great read from Hugo here. She is a stay away, hard stay away. Um, quote, uh, it's rich. This is, this is now from Mundy. Uh, firing back at him, quote, it's rich men grinding up those that's helpless for extra penny on the pound or the right to a patch of sand or a fuck. Hugo asks if they are done, and Monday says that they are. Monday then explains that there's an arrangement. Their arrangement is over. He's got nothing for him anymore. Why? Because he just doesn't give a fuck anymore. Just doesn't care. So basically what, you know, last episode we got that big reveal that Monday is, you know, at least has sex with men. And then he's had sex with Hugo and Hugo was holding this over his head. It looks like Mundy now does not care if that gets out. He will not be blackmailed by Hugo anymore. Most dangerous person to deal with, a person who's got shit to lose. This is yeah. Frank's this is Frank's new philosophy, is that I don't honestly care what you have over me because bring it. We'll see what happens. Mundy gets a full clap from me. Oh yeah. man, I am I'm not hiding where I'm going with, with segments later, but man, I am loving what Mundy's putting down this episode. Mundy has become Easily one of my top three characters on this show. Solidly each episode. And this just hammers it home for these saints. Cut to Harriet and she's on the phone with Anil. I think the plan is to, again, get like we've mentioned before, get all those university friends over to speak a bunch of different languages. I do. The only thing I like here uh, that's kind of funny is that Anil, typical guy, eventually starts with, he leads with a no. And she's like, oh, well, you can sneak out for a kiss, but you can't do this. And he goes, okay. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Fine. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, yes, I'll do it. I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, honey. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I'm on the same page. That was actually funny writing there. That was good. How many people they got in this room too? Is that she's really put together a, like a vast collection of languages here for this given moment? 
Yeah, I don't know. I one thing we're not quite to that scene yet, but one thing that made me laugh about that scene is that the Italian guy looked to like being like a chef's outfit or something. Like he just ma- <laughs> just came from rolling chef. pasta or yeah. something. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Mario Batali is here. <laughs> uh, cuts a pin. It's showing up uh, to Augustus, who seems to. S- it does seem to me that Augustus spends his days just sitting on a bench looking at birds. Did you get that feeling that maybe that's just what he does? The, 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 the Augustus just embodies the bored rich. This this is what Augustus runs on, is that he, the man has the luxury to just not sit or stand next to a bench and just stare at crows all day, and no one really is in a position to comment on just how weird that would be to watch a man he's, just do that. He's Bran Stark. That's what he does. He sits yeah. there and looks at birds. Um <laughs> Notice and it's somehow thing. even more awkward with women. Uh, yeah, for sure. Notice the first thing he does is ask if Lavinia knows she's there. So that's a that's a nice little insertion there. I mean, he he, he goes by it quick, but it's like it shows where his head's at. Like everything that happens, he's like, "Whoa, does Lavinia know about this?" Under his uh, very massive beta guy, uh, yeah. big big beta B. Um, uh, Pennant says she knows she's not welcome there, and Augustus launches into what I'm gonna artfully call a fumbling bumbling stumbling mumbling apology that spans about two minutes now i am not going to try to quote him here because yeah yeah during my my recap i like to quote people but i think you can't do it here his speech is super disjointed um and if i tried to it would just be stupid so i'm going to kind of gloss over it if you have any specific quotes you want to go to you know hammer it hammer it when i'm done but he basically offers condolences for mary and apologizes for what he did at the party that big terrible unforgivable sin that you talked about earlier mm-hmm. but during the apology penance misinterprets this is the second time this happens um misinterprets what's going on and he seems penance seems to think that he's talking about killing mary so yet again these these characters are talking past each other about the death of mary mm-hmm. but penance seems to think that he's admitting to the the killing of mary <laughs> Um, he clears that up. I think he actually goes, what, what is happening? What, what is happening right now? Um, he clears that up, says, then he finally lands on. And I, 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 when we got here, I paused and I thought this might be a part that Spencer likes. Cause he says acquaintance, not acquaintance. I just want to be your friend. I, as much as I find, you know, how the show really wants me to regard what he did is more extreme than I saw it. I really like this scene once they get past the whole bullshit misunderstood conversation where apparently Penance legitimately believes that he's the guy. Like, legitimately is going into this, like, I'm going to catch the murderer kind of thing. Has a wax cylinder kind of weird device on her, like, hip to record the conversation. I don't even know what that was breaks, about. Yeah. Yeah. that's keeping to that trope with her technology. All that's bullshit. I was kind of annoyed by it. But moment you go into this conversation where it's two people honestly just talking and him legitimately trying to apologize for hurting her, I'm with it. It's a good scene between characters. They can make this relationship work and they can make me like Penance when they just don't use her for the ways that I just find awkward and unnatural. Would you call it touching? <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> uh, anyway, I thought you would like it. I did. I I, did. When, he, when he said I he did. Got to friend, I thought that's a Spencer line right there. It was. Um, yeah, Augustus does offer this quote during the exchange. I will quote one thing. Quote, um, nobody is quite as barbaric as the well-to-do. I guess that was him trying to sort of explain, you know. The well, games they play. Yeah, the games they play or whatever to, to Penance. Also, we learned that Augustus sent the flowers from here. He sent the big one. He sent the big old wreath. So that mm-hmm. was Augustus. And Penance finishes up with this. Do you think your sister did the murder then? Go ahead. I'm going to see the floor. Go. 
she says that, we get him cocking his head a little bit, and there is the weirdest hard cut away from that scene. I actually stopped and rewound it three times to make sure I wasn't, my camp, my footage wasn't skipping. As they just leave that scene so hard to go immediately to a fireball explosion. Preach. It is so weird as a film, Preach. just to make that completely incongruous jump between scenes. Preach, brother. I thought it was very weird, and I thought it was awkward, and uh, uh, it's just everything you've been talking about about the penance, the penance interjection. It's not, it's not strong. I don't object to the character. I actually like the character. I object to how they keep using her as a prop for these scenes. Mm-hmm. Cut to Bonfire Annie, um, who's come around to ask about the Beggar King. She's lighting <laughs> people on fire. She's just um, murdering people on the streets of is. London. She's lighting people on fire. She, a lot of people. Annie is low-key the worst. Like She's worse than Malady, I think, because she's just literally walking around lighting people on fire. That's what I, got, that's what I took from the initial Man, part of this scene. We see her kill like six people this scene, yeah. burning them alive. And we're supposed to just like chuckle at it? Like, yeah. Really? It's very wow. strange. But she does meet a character called Nimblejack. Ah, uh, new character alert, new character alert. I just want to point out that this guy gets billing on the HBO website as a listed cast member. So remember Nimblejack. We will get more Nimblejack. Um, I already find him a little bit insufferable, but that seems to be what they want you to feel with him. So I'm okay. Yeah. He says he wonders what she's doing there. She says she's from around here. Uh, they don't seem to remember you. No, they did. She asks him uh, what he wants, uh, and he says a drink, maybe dinner, a nice eel pie, perhaps. Um, I just want to take a pause here, Spencer. Um, a little factoid for you. Just, mm. you know, I drop, yeah, like please, to drop a little yeah, knowledge on. here for you and our uh, listeners. Uncle Lee's coming in with more knowledge? Yeah, Uncle Lee's got one for the kiddos here. Kiddos, did you know that working class London really does like eel? That's a very popular dish in working class London. You know what? I'm actually down with it. Eel can be absolutely delicious. Eel can be great stuff. Not the traditional preparation of working class London. I will no. tell you what that is. No. What they do is they take a pretty young eel, uh, not very big around. They chop it up. They don't debone it. They do clean it, but they don't debone it. They flash fry it. And then they stick it in gelatin. And then they serve it to you in a gelatinous mass with mashed potatoes. That's just a little factoid for you. It made me think of it. British cuisine loves them some gelatinoid that kind of gel gelatin consistency. They just thrive on that jazz. Yeah. So that is neither here nor there. It's apropos nothing. But I did want to point that out because it made me think of it. But I I do want to ask you this question. Did you think he was asking Bonfire Annie on a date here? Yeah. It yeah. did seem like he was shooting a shot. <laughs> I mean, Bonfire Annie, attractive woman. Probably not the woman you just want a proposition like this. No, no, not well. He's got it. I'll tell you though, if if anybody's gonna date her, he's got the right turn to date her. He's got the right turn, but also again on Bonfire Randy just being outright murderous. She does not know that, and she just straight up goes to kill him for saying that to her. Exactly. So that's a lesson for every. If you just ask her, so much as ask her on a date, she tries to light you on fire. So she is a tough hang. Is this show working like George of the Jungle where people just get really bad boo-boos unless we know they're dead? Or does this show just think that setting someone on fire is not imminently harmful to life and limb? I'm not sure how they want me to interpret this character. Is that... it, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, because when you really start, like, I think you're just not... You know, this is one of those situations. Almost like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relate it to when Amalia's fighting. 
I think it's one of those where you're just supposed to be like, ha ha, that's cool and move on. You're not supposed to think about it a lot. Is that's it, what I'm, that's my take. I mean, apparently they've basically just assigned ba- the Beggar King's goons into the same category of stormtroopers is that we're just supposed to default not care due to the nature of their profession. I'm not there yet, but they apparently want me to be. I'm not sure that everybody she was lighting on fire at the beginning with the Beggar King's goons. She should be doing it to anybody in the alleyway. But um, I think she does. Right. <laughs> but she shoots fire at Nimble Jack and he blocks it. So he's got a very interesting turn here. Um, here's I'm going to tell you what I th- I thought it was, and you, you tell me what you think it was, because I, I think I might be wrong. It it looked to me like he can basically like shoot out like a slab of concrete. It's weird, floating, hovering concrete that then evaporates after he leaves it. It's yeah, not it a like real a, thing. Yeah, it seems like a, like a like a like a solid eight seconds of a maybe two foot around in a circle slab of concrete that he can just fire off from his fingertips. I mean, when, when he exits, you know, stage up, he basically throws these things out like they're Super Mario blocks that he then can jump on and get the power up as he's going as he's going off screen. It's, Hence the name. I, I don't know what these things... It's, it's almost as like it's just a bit of energy that almost seems like it resembles metal, that he's hovering in air that didn't just evaporates when he's done with it. it. Doesn't If it's literally physical, then the man is making matter and dissolving matter at will, which seems... Mm really damn powerful but i don't know yet but you're right about it i definitely mario i almost heard that music as he was going out yes um uh molly nimblejack then reports that he knows odium's uh address um was told to amalia by a fiddler apparently she here's the quote pinned him down and squeezed it out of him yikes har har Nimblejack then respectfully requests she not kill Odium. He says that um, this wasn't the Beggar King's work. He indicated that some, basically, here's what he seems to be indicating. Somebody's putting on a show. Somebody's pitting everybody against each other. There's someone out there that's um, moving this, these, these strings, the puppet master moving these strings around, and it is not the Beggar King. Um, Odium knows fuck all. He's dim, bless him, and he's in for another trassing. He then proposes a deal, which I think is probably coming from the Beggar King. Basically, mm-hmm. leave Odium alone. I, you know, you being Bonfire Annie and, and the whole crew, leave Odium alone, and we'll forget that you torched all that opium because the Beggar King doesn't forget. The man remembers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he lost a shipment. Uh, he's basically saying, we'll be good on that. Nimblejack then uses his turn to take off. And he goes mm-hmm. right up the stairs, exit stage up. And uh, there you go. End of scene. Anything else? What? On, anything else you want to talk about with Nimble Jack? What, a couple, a couple little points. One, Nimble Jack sets up that he's functioning as a very kind of similar role to Annie in terms of what her role in maybe like Malady's gang is, where he says, "I don't work for the Beggar King. I work with him." So he's kind of setting up that he functions in a similar capacity that she does as like a hired operative or an associate that has similar interests, kind of jazz. So he's you don't think he's he's not branded? We're saying. No, he is not. I, so I think he's almost intentionally saying that to say, hey, you and I are alike. Join me for eel pie kind of thing. Um, Maybe a drink. We'll see what happens. Another another thing about this is that this show I don't think is ever going to succeed in making me view the Beggar King as in any way scary or a threat or in any way actually powerful. Is that it, It's perfectly realistic that he'd send an intermediary, but the more time we just see people wreck shop on his people or just... Yeah. do what they want with respect to in flaunting his authority. I have no, I no way view this guy as a threat, despite the fact they continually want me to think that he is. 
Yeah, he's so, the Empire. He's got stormtroopers, but we never saw the Death Star. Like we never got yeah. the big thing that gives gives it credence, you know, and any the sort of evil credibility, right? And, we don't we don't get that. All we see is just goons and him yelling. And his Darth Vader was defeated by Luke Skywalker the first scene that he walked into. This is like this is not you're not setting this guy up as being anything other than just a name that's occasionally gonna be dropped every now and then. And as said, the scene ends with Several guys who I agree with you just seem like they're warehouse workers who may or may not work for the bigger king, just kind of running up to Annie, and she just fries like four of them. And scene exits, and that's that. Okay, one last thing to talk about with this nimble jack scene before we move on. I know I'm kind of please. Horse, but, um, I have I did it. Uh, I did a little internet research. Why? Because I'm podcast professional, and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. character nimble jack is actually supposed to be um, androgynous. There's no, it's no, it's not supposed to be male or female. And that's supposed to be like kind of a big deal for the show that they're introducing this sort of, is that the right phrase? Is that the right word? It's not, it's not a male or if it's supposed to, it's, it's um, purposely um, ambiguous about the sex. I mean, he's a, he's a bit of a pretty boy, but it necessarily seems as androgynous, but I can, I can see how they're kind of going for that physicality with the character. So, but, okay. but they're, but it's supposed to be a thing. So I think we're going to hear about this that they've they've introduced. Like they they're pushing that they've done this with this character. And I okay. think that the the actor actress whoever um, who plays this character is really um, out there on social talking about the fact that they've picked up this role. Now, are they literally saying this character is non-binary or just androgynous in terms of appearance and style or whatever else. Um, I'm not sure that I under, I'm not sure that the um, what Gerald, I understand, I don't Gerald know the specified. <laughs> yeah, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that what I've read and what I've understood, they've not mm-hmm. really made that distinction clear. Gotcha. Um, but I know that they're they're not going for male or female, and that's that's something that they're pretty proud of. And it, you know, it's, it's it is a step forward, obviously. Right. Um, uh, and uh, uh, would be a pretty big deal in 1899. So if they wait, are really going to go with that, I, it probably should come up in the plot, right? Well, th- th- this show's pushing a little bit of what 1890 would be able to emotionally cope with in a lot of ways. So, but I think we're, we're bringing a much more of a modern degree of representation and diversity to the show than rather than necessarily what they would even have had words for in 1899. Yeah. All right. Cut to Mass and Abbey and Amalia is showing up in Penance's Tesla. Um, I do love that every time we get anything Lord Masson related or Masson Abbey related or anything, shout out to the show, Mm. warm, comfortable, other side of the pillow, right? They give you the dark, dark music so that, you know, bad character, put them in the villain category. They give you that music (laughs) so that, you know, uh, no confusion here, folks inside. We're, uh, go ahead. We're, we're giving you the audio equivalent of a black hat, just so there's no ambiguity here at all. What to expect going in. Sure. a note also, again, I am still annoyed that they have not affixed a windscreen to this I know. car. <laughs> I know. Her face and, would just be covered in soot and bugs. I know, and Amalia shows up with not not near bit of dirt Poor on her Christine. face. Not a little bit at all. Um, inside, Amalia is shown to Masson's study. He follows her in. Masson makes it clear he's happy to see Amalia. Um, like, he's happy to um, have her, right, and to receive yeah. her in part because of Lavinia. Quote, Lavinia and I may not see eye to eye on everything, but she doesn't waste her time um, with, what was that word? I messed up the Trifling word. Trifling people. Trifling people. There you go. And so what's great about that quote is we get both sides of the coin on that relationship, right? Because we got a, that mm-hmm. great Lavinia quote about Lord Masson, um, I think in episode two, and now we get a, a quote about Lavinia from Lord Masson. And they're kind of describing the same thing, right? Like, 
like I, like I said, Ted Kennedy, Strom Thurmond. Like, I, that is exactly what we're getting here. That, that is very apparent what they're going for. And it's fun here, too, is that we've had so many characters say, oh, uh, say Amalia, you don't want to know her. Don't want to talk with her. Don't get around her. Lord Masson's like, please, come in, have tea. He, he both seems to respect her because Lavinia does, but he also seems like he's got enough of a read on her that you're a person I want to know. You're a person that could be useful. You're a mover and shaker. Let's talk. Now, we also, though, did have that conversation with the housekeeper where the housekeeper was like, eh, we've all been talking and maybe you like Miss True, right? Like, so I think maybe they're they're hinting, right? They're hinting. I mean, obviously, cold, dead heart of Lord Masson, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously. Um, maybe like 5% got a little crush on Amalia. I don't know. Maybe that's hey, in play. She's an attractive actress. She's an attractive character. Maybe, maybe he's not entirely dead. The suit that she's wearing is, in fact, attractive. Uh, Madison brings up Mary and says she's probably had all the condolences she has room for, so he'll offer her a sherry. Amalia says it's a bit early, but fine. Uh, interesting that she's getting a little high and mighty about the drinking time now. Um, <laughs> you can pull that shit with Lord Madison, Amalia, but we just saw you get hammered at like 10 a.m. at a bar, so you know. Right, it's on. still so all that. the same day. We know you've been we know you've been drinking for the last four hours right now. <laughs> she's probably already drunk, and she's like, "That's ah, still a bit early." Um, uh, Masson then goes on to say he imagines Amalia thinks he had something to do because he just like reads her mind like right away he's like I imagine you think I had something to do with Mary's death um, but I'm going to disappoint you uh, he didn't do it and no one at the club is taking credit for it either but he promises to keep an ear out Amalia thanks gentleman. him um, two questions do you think Lord Masson is being genuine when he says I will keep an ear out and I'll let you know and two do you think Amalia is being genuine when she says thank you or is this all just superficial crap? I interpreted at that moment as genuine on both their parts, but also respecting that it's like they're they're being polite, they're being genuine, with also mutual understanding that when their interests are not aligned, they will knife each other. Yeah, I really didn't know what to think of that scene. It was it was a little confusing. Um, so then we move on. Amalia. Um, goes into an exercise. She tells Masson, okay, imagine that you did, you are the killer. Mm-hmm. Um, not not the, the guy shooting, this is the distinction we raised earlier in the episode, right? Not yeah. the guy shooting the gun, but the mastermind behind it. And I'm going to play the role of Mary. Boom, let's do this. And scene. And um, here we go. Why wouldn't you want me dead? Masson, talking to Mary, says he's not sure he wants her dead. Furthermore, he's not entirely sure what her turn is. A beacon of some sort? Anyway, mm-hmm. benign. But he goes on to call Mary overall harmless. And he's not quite sure why she should be killed. They go on to drive this imagery home by um, by talking about the fact that she was dressed in white when she was gunned down, right? Like, love the show. They they give us Mary, Christ-like figure, yeah. with the beacon. She's got She's got to be sacrificed. She's in white. And then we have two characters talking about it later and actually addressing it. Yes. It... it, it, it it's it's either they don't trust the audience or they're willing to almost be tongue-in-cheek with the obvious imagery kind of things. It's almost the the, the character of Amalia just almost kind of like laughs it off as, oh, dear God, she was even wearing white. It's like, she is such an obvious beacon Christ figure for us. It don't makes perfect the, sense. Don't you get, because we're starting to get a lot of these examples, don't you get the impression maybe they just don't trust the audience? I'm not sure. Because we're getting too many of these where they yeah. explain the joke and they explain the imagery and they, they really put it out there for you, actually in dialogue between characters. And there's almost such a sort of a winking effect attached to it. I think you're right. I think this is just them hammering home that everyone's on the same page because this is important. Please make a note here. 
Yeah, Amalia then guesses that killing Mary wasn't a warning. It was done to demoralize the touch, to, quote, pull the heart out of the orphans. Masson agrees. Calls Mary, quote, a casualty of war. That will come up later. Mm. Amalia, so we're at war. Masson still talking to Mary. Now we are going to enter a series of quotes here that I am going to nominate for best line of the episode, not because I like uh-huh. the quotes per se, but they are very well written. And I think that they, we have been searching. We, we, I gave Mass the booby prize last episode, guys. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I put him at the bottom of the list. We've been searching for a role, a reason behind the Mass and character. And here they are, cards on the table, folks. <laughs> We're getting the read it's on Mass. It's delightful. With these, this, this series of quotes here. And here we go. A few years back, a pestilence ran through this city. Some anarchic cabal found or developed a power that mocks God, that molests and disfigures his natural law. It was an attack on the stability, the harmony, if you will, of the empire. And we must show the victims of this deliberate plague that they are not special. They are not a community. Victims is all they have license to be, goes on to say. If he was the killer, he's the lion. He'd be the emperor. Empire, the Great Britain, basically, Great Britain, right? He, he, mm-hmm. he, that, that is who would have done it. Um, and he, he also explains, by the way, a great great quote here about Great Britain, um, saying they're unmerciful in their self-preservation. Like that. <laughs> That's Amalia a good line, says, yeah. oh, okay, so my enemy is Great Britain. Bang, cuts her off. I said, killer. Your enemy, Miss Brighton, is the scum that caused this plague, the fools who call it power, and the woman who should have known what would have happened to you in that park. Unless, of course, she did. Well, theory time. We can get to theory time later. But um, so I, a couple things going on here. I'm really interested to hear your because I, I, I'm sure that when you watch this, you paused it and thought, "Whoop! All right, here's the big important segment." Right? This this screams like Spencer analysis. But here's my read on it. I feel like we get we're getting what Masson really thinks of this situation. I I still don't think he's Mary's killer. Later, they start. We're, we're going to jump to the next scene where they start to speculate if he was actually um, admitting to the crime. I don't think he's admitting to being Mary's killer. What I think he's admitting to is his view on the situation, mm-hmm. which that this whole thing of, you know, this thing mocks God, it molests and disfigures his natural law. You're not a community. Victims is all you have license to be. Mm-hmm. And that is where he's coming from. And then, you know, I think when he he moves on to say, basically, um, you know, you know, Great Britain might have been the killer, but your real enemy is this whole situation, because he views um, the fact that the the people are touched as the as the overall problem. Right. And whoever did this is the is the real enemy. And it's not just his enemy to him because it's disrupting the natural order. It should be the enemy of the touched as well, because, oh, you know, you're victims. Right. So. Um, I thought felt like we were getting two things there. We were getting um, mm-hmm. let, let's get the the back of the of the of the trading card of Lord Masson. Like let's get the real scouting report of this guy. But then we were also getting his framing for Amalia of how she should think of the situation. What did you think? I think you've got an excellent read on it. I found it legitimately weird that the characters after the scene immediately go, "Well, he basically just confessed to the crime." I'm like, no. I did not read it that way. I read it mm. as him. I read it as him being legitimately entertained or amused by Amalia and really answering her question as honestly as he can about what his perspective is and his read on the situation. I don't read this as him confessing to a crime. I read mm-hmm. it as him very similar to the scene Amalia had with Frank Mundy of two of two equals in certain ways meeting of minds to discuss a problem. Right. I, I think he'd almost see the assassination as being below him, particularly in terms of hiring a touched or using a touched to do it. 
Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't think I. I mean, from what we can tell, Masson does. I mean, other than the fact he has his daughter chained up in the basement, which you established last episode, we he doesn't <laughs> have any. Not true, he doesn't yeah. really do any work with the touched. I mean, it, I mean, he obviously Lucy's a rat, but like he doesn't have people on his payroll in the same way that like you know Hugo is actively working with the touched or Lavinia has them at the orphanage. Lord Masson doesn't really interact with them, right? That we can mm-hmm. tell. And it's one of the things we talked about earlier is that he almost seems like he'd be too subtle to li- not even just that he wouldn't hire a touch to be the assassin. It's too blunt of an instrument that makes it obvious about who could have done it. That only someone like Lord Maston could have the power to do that. So it's almost like, you know, the Soviet Union saying, no, we didn't. Ha- we, Oswald isn't our agent in terms of killing Kennedy. It would be too obvious for it to be us. It would be too obvious blowback on us to have done it. Masson hiring the assassin that shot up the theater to go do that, it would be too potent, too much of a potential to blow back on him that he was the one responsible for it. I, I don't see this as Masson confessing to a crime. I see it as him playing out the game that Amalia asked him to play in detail and giving her a certain measure of insight into what his perspective of the whole board is. And I do think if I was Amalia, well, let's go, let's go on the recap because we can we can continue the conversation with the recap. Back at the orphanage, Amalia seems to think Masson confessed. We're not so sure that he did. Um, but he might have, con- like, he didn't confess to Mary's murder, but I do think he kind of confessed to something, right? Like, if I'm Amalia... He confessed to knowledge, maybe. Well, and, but also, like, if I'm Amalia, like, I, uh, I I went there wanting to figure out, did he, did he kill Mary, right? Mm-hmm. But what he confessed to you is that how he views the touched is he is a bigger enemy than maybe even Amalia knew. Like if, if what he's saying, you know, that whole quote that I gave you twice now mm-hmm. is really how he views the situation. If I was Amalia and I was truly the champion of the touched, I would view Lord Masson as the damn antichrist, right? He is coming at this from a way of like, you don't even have the right to be a community. Mm-hmm. Like that's pretty damn rough. Basically, the only emotion that you should be allowed to be regarded with is pity is his perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that I, I, you will be allowed to exist. You will be treated with sympathy. But beyond that, you have no right to function in civilized society. That's the perspective he's bringing to bear on this. That is just antimatter to what Amalia stands for. Yeah. He's going to do it with a smile and politely and through the legal system. But still, this you now know better than ever that this man is your mortal enemy. And also will happily invite you to a lovely cup of tea and sharing. Yeah, he's kind of a shit, though, because, like, he says you're a victim, but you don't have the right to be a community. Like, Masson completely stiff-arming the idea of support groups, right? Like, <laughs> even victims don't have a right to sort. He is so against collective bargaining that even victims aren't allowed to do it. <laughs> that's, that's our Masson take for the episode right now. He doesn't like anybody getting together in groups. What? And it may be part against of the reason- it writ large. Maybe part of the reason he respects Amalia so much, because Amalia is so inherently an individual, is so inherently yeah. deterministic about what she goes about things, that in some ways she may be embodying a bit of his ideal for how the touched should be coping with their condition. How far does this go with Mass? Like, you want to come to a dinner party? A dinner party? When you could eat alone? What sort of bad <laughs> British are you? You're, you're, <laughs> you're not a countryman, my mate. Did, did you suggest that we share an eel pie? Sir, you make your own and eat it sitting at least eight feet apart from each other. You want to have a drink? You don't drink alone? Like, how, how far does this go with this guy? Yeah, seems to really I don't the think this altogether. far. I think we've taken it a little <laughs> bit hyperbolic far. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Bonfire kicks around the idea of killing Masson, and obviously Penance is against it. Uh, but actually, Amalia is too, because she thinks that if Masson did it, he's a part of something bigger, and simply taking him down um, won't do anything. He'll just be replaced. I'm not... 
her whole read on Masson seems completely off. Um, and, and what they yeah. decide to do with Masson seems to me really dumb too. In terms of we've got to okay, we can't kill it, but we've got to hit back against it. Yeah, bonfire. Yeah, bonfire says they need a response. If they don't do something, it'll be worse next time. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't know why they're decide. Like, based on that conversation, I'm not quite sure why Amalia is so hell bent on trying to hit Masson. I think they should still be fact finding, but she seems to have arrived at this idea that they need to do something to Masson. And who's got an idea? Oh, our Lucy does. Mm-hmm. She jumps right up and says, "Well, they've got all this, you know, like a munition." Um, stockpile here in the warehouse and I got some fellas down there who can get you in and oh I got this whole idea why don't we do it and Amalia says boom like it let's do it bang let's roll with that just a note here as well so much of what their plan is here is yeah we got to hit back about Masson which I think is dumb it's gonna make an obvious it's an obvious potential for him to blow back on them obvious potential to frame them or set up that they committed this crime it's a setup practically in terms of what this potentially could be but they're just walking into it but whatever so much of the rest of their plan is built on, well, we can't harm anybody. We have to make sure everybody is safe and no one is hurt by this. They're setting munitions on fire in the middle of the city of London. Yeah, even, I don't even know. Even if the explosion doesn't take out the surrounding neighborhoods, the fire would spread like the Dickens. Oh, but Spencer, didn't didn't you see? I mean, they, they looked around to make sure there was nobody there. So, covered. Bombs! Have you seen a Chinese firework factory go Spencer, up? But you don't you understand the writing of this show? They looked around the warehouse. That's and, it. They checked the box. That's it. They covered it. And there was a phone call where the guy on the other end of the line said, "No, it's a miracle that nobody was hurt." It's like unbelievable. Okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Cut back to the police station, and someone is fussing at Mundy about marching into the gentlemen's club. Uh, Mundy says he was following a lead, but the guy says, look, the superintendent would only care if Malady was there. Then we hear the superintendent yell, Mundy, get in here. I think the intention is that, you know, the thought is he's being called to the carpet, but Mundy goes in and ah, we see Malady. She is there. She is snuck in the window. It seems she snuck in the window. Might Mm -hmm. have a theory for you there. And there is a rope around or a belt around the, the boss's throat, the superintendent, right? Superintendent, you can think of chief of police, right? Yeah. Around his throat. Um, Mundy, I gotta say, Mundy is dealing with very unpredictable Everything. person and he does a great, great job. He might as well be like a, he's a, he's a detective. Mm-hmm. It looks like he's like a frontline police officer too. Cause he, you know, you know, he'll knock you out if he needs to. He also could be like a hostage negotiator. This man is rounding out his base. He's doing a great job this episode. Make this man a formal officer. He could be handling politics well. I mean, this is a guy that started this episode willing to murder other people that were, you know, heckling at a funeral. Here, the friggin' person that kidnapped his beloved, who's been murdering people throughout all of town, that he was beating up witnesses to get information on, is now holding the chief of police with a garrote to their neck. And he immediately drops any any impulse to violence and starts politely, calmly negotiating for his release. Yeah, it is a great Who job knows, here. man? Yeah, he tries to calm her down. She seems upset um, here throughout the scene. I'm not going to do a lot of quoting here because Malady's crazy, but he does a lot of... Uh, she seems very upset uh, that the superintendent is lying about her and the paper's lying about her. Yeah. She doesn't like the idea that people think she killed Mary. Yeah. Um, in this scene, anyway, Malady is claiming that she liked Mary. Malady's saying she talked to uh, Mary about the detective and that uh, Mary didn't marry him because he was sad. So a little gut punch there. But professional mm-hmm. that our guy Mundy is, lets it roll right off his back. 
mm-hmm. keeps talking to her, says, all right, well, you like Mary? Well, for Mary's sake, can you let the superintendent live? Not a bad idea. I'm like, you know, he's just, just trying any different avenue he can get to here, but it doesn't seem to land because Malady then says that Mary doesn't have a say in it. She's dead. She was lowered in a box while everyone was singing about a work day and whatnot. This gives Mundy a little pause because he heard the song at the funeral, which apparently was just earlier this morning. This is all one day. Monday asked her if she was there and Malady claims she was in the box with Mary. I'm going to pause it there, Spencer. Do you believe she was in the... Okay, here's my my issue. I mean, she seems to know what they were singing at the funeral. So she has some sort of intelligence either by being there or hearing about it, about what happened at the funeral. I just don't have any idea at all why she would want to be in the box it just doesn't make a lick of sense why she would be in the box with me this is another moment of where we have to make a decision about how realistic the show wants to be because the show and the character are clearly trying to tell us she was in the damn box that requires so much willful suspension of disbelief for me i struggle to pull it off she makes no sense like why would she do that and then how'd she get out she's nutty it's just very strange. But anyway, Monday asks her what she wants. And Mallory says she wants everyone to stop lying. Monday, great answer. I'll try. Yeah. Mallory then jumps out the window and makes a break for it. Bang, we got our chase scene. Frank runs, uh, tries to get her. They have a little light skirmish. And during this, Frank bashes her head against a scenic wall Funk. multiple times. Funk. Not going to lie, I heard some crunch in there. I kind of thought Mallory might be dead. I, I, I mean, you don't, thinking- you don't take somebody's head and just ram it. Like, throw them as hard as you can against a cement wall multiple times, and they're just down for, like, a 20-minute nap. Like, that's not, that's not how that works. Keep in mind, this is a character that her heads should have had her head stoved in with a metal pipe by Amalia, then got shot through the freaking lung into the chest and just kind of shrugged it off till the next day to get, get uh, you know, Dr. Cousin's surgery. If we have any clue as to her superhuman ability, it appears to be endurance to pain. Yeah. Endurance to damage. Tough. Tough cookie there, your favorite character, Malady. She's, she's hanging in <laughs> Back to the scene. Uh, a cop runs up with a knife. Looks like he's going to just take the, the moment to stab Malady. But Frank stops him, gets very pissed at the concept of that, you know, vigilante justice. And he says, she will get justice from us. She gets justice from us. Monday taken charge. Mm-hmm. This is how we prove we're better than them, Spencer. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't, she, that's what she would do to us. We don't do that to them. Monday, Monday's just it, really taking charge. Monday is, from the moment he started, Monday's becoming weirdly the white knight of this series. And that's an interesting, it's an interesting direct arc he's been on since where he started four episodes ago. It's an unbelievable graph for, you know, where the characters are, right? Because mm-hmm. like, and, and, and I'm talking about like, you know, high on this graph is like, you know, we feel like you're interesting you're engaged in the plot you're doing a lot of things and then like down is where we think that you don't really have much to do with the plot and you're kind of uninteresting like masson's chart is just like GameStop <laughs> stock right it's just all over the place mm-hmm. and mundy's is kind of like that because mundy had periods where I, I thought he was sort of a boring character or, or not that important now it just seems like he might be the most important character in the series so i don't mm-hmm. know Monday did not impress you all episode one. You found him pretty one note. And man, has he broadened his song since then. Yeah, got that got that shirt on back order. Cut to the Myrtle translation exercise. Um, lots of people needed for this. Whole room full of people. And Myrtle standing there and, and talking. We see it starting to work. Some of the folks in the room are starting to pick up little tidbits. And so that's that's what they wanted to give you, is that this is going to work so that, that the later scene makes sense. That's all this was. Including, as you noted, Chef Boyardee helping out. 
Yeah, you got an Italian guy. He's just just got done it. from pressing pasta and making some sauce. <laughs> what else would Italian people do in London in 1899, sir? Uh, unbelievable. Uh, cut to Amalia late at night. Lucy gets her into the storage facility. Um, it appears and and bonfire came with her. It appears to be um, uh, some contraption that Amalia has from Penis that she sends in. It's like a I don't know, some sort of it, it's like the little doll-esque looking thing, but all it does go ahead. It's a more mechanical version of the doll from Saw that's riding in to spray to spray knockout gas. Yeah, kinda. It just some little thing that goes in, a little Trojan horse, and it sprays the sprays the gas and knocks everybody out. And of course this is Penance's way of saving their life, right? Penance has like mm-hmm. saved a lot penance, haha, saved a lot of people's life here. You know, Molly probably would have just either beat the hell out of them or killed them, but nope, Penance had a plan. Again, anyway, these our, people our heroes, up. folks, our heroes. Uh, yeah, she goes in being led by Lucy. Amalia is looking around. Lucy tells her uh, no one is there. Amalia says they should open a box just to make sure they have the right shipment. Mm-hmm. Lucy then immediately tries to deflect attention and says, oh, well, maybe those guards, the guards outside. Maybe we should check them. Maybe we should check the guards. And uh, Amalia, having none of it. Tells her to open the box. When she does, it's rocks. Lucy at first tries to play dumb about this, but Amalia, again, having none of it. This is sort of a come-to-Jesus moment here with Amalia. Lucy asks her, um, how'd you figure it out? And Amalia says, well, it was a rippling. And in the rippling, how Lucy was Lucy was talking and going on about Masson's trophies and animals. I'm uh, kicking it to you for a frustrated rant. Go. If you saw this coming, why did you go forward with it? You could have, if you knew in advance of bringing her on this mission, why bring her? Why not just confront her in the base? Why not do that when she's surrounded and you can easily incapacitate her without a battle scene where you could have been killed at any damn time? Why bring her to enemy territory to then reveal that you know that she already notified the enemy that you're going into enemy territory? It's like you're asking for for there to be a trap sprung on you. I think the only plausible answer to that question is Don't that Amalia was holding out. Amalia was holding out hope that this wasn't true, uh, um, and she needed the proof of the fact that Masson had gotten the tip they were going to burn it and actually moved all the munitions out and filled it with boxes. And, you know, to making sure that Masson wouldn't lose any money on this deal. She needed that proof before she could actually have Lucy dead to rights. I think so. But if that's the case, then when Lucy says, how did you figure it out? Amalia should have said the rocks right there. That's how I figured it out, right? Because that seemed to be the turning point for her when she really knew that Lucy was this double agent. But anyway, that's what the case is, ladies and gentlemen. Lucy, double agent, has been working for Masson all along. Mm-hmm. Um, Amalia then throws in that, um, you know, if she didn't know through the rippling and I guess through the box of rocks, then she would have been suspicious um, about the absences Mm-hmm. The, and the money that she was obviously stealing. Love how the show just throws that in. Where did like, that come from? What? This is just a brand new revelation that Lucy apparently has been stealing money and Amalia uh, knew of it. And like, no big deal. Like, again, what kind of orphanage is she running? Again, Spencer Theory, there were original three episodes that just got lost by an editor somewhere. They had all of these details and background and they were just, they're just missing. Maybe we'll find them on the DVD sometime. So this is really like episode seven. Yeah. And there was a four, five, and six we missed. Entirely. <laughs> um, Lucy asks her what she wants. And Amalia says, 
that now we get the powerful moment of the episode. Amalia says she wants it to be someone else. She wanted it to be Chariot, uh, Harriet or Joe, but, but not you, Lucy. You were the, the first woman, the first woman, you know, to come in the orphan, come into the orphanage. And, and one of the first uh, people that she really connected with, Amalia then says, you know, she felt like she could really rely on Lucy, that Lucy understand the world the way that, that she did. And Lucy cuts her off and says she doesn't know fuck all about the world. Quote, all your war stories. You don't know which war. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, it's awful because you left bodies on the field and you're all damaged. The, the Spencer, the quotes from Amalia and from her. You're, I think this theory you have is right, that there were three lost episodes. because <laughs> Lucy seems to be talking to her. As if she knows that Amalia is this sort of like transplant figure and that she has all these like faux memories and stuff. And that's what she seems to be casually referencing here. But we don't have any frame of reference for for this. We don't we don't understand where this is coming from. Apparently, everybody knows it. It's the weirdest damn thing. How did we not know it then earlier? If it's so just common knowledge. It's very weird. Um, she says she broke her. They, well, then Lucy goes on to to make a very L- Lucy tough, has some cogent points here. here in really, a second. really painful admission that yes, she did break. You know, basically break the bones of her son by holding him. Not anything new. We knew that, but the new uh, the new detail here is that she discloses that the death wasn't sudden. It was slow. It took him a long time to die. Oh. She says she hasn't touched anyone in three years. Masson says he'll cure her. Now, Amalia dismisses this, rightfully so. You know, of course Masson says this to you. And, my, and Lucy says, well, what do you say? Yeah. You know, if you if you understood the people that you were trying to lead, you would know that all, you know, most of the touch would line up in a second to get rid of their turn if they had a chance. And you don't seem to understand this. And Lucy questions Amalia. Ask her, did you do this? Meaning... Did you create this turn in me? I think this might have been a question Lucy's been wanting to ask for a really long time to Amalia. Uh Amalia, quote, we're getting more here from the lost episodes. I just got left behind. Of course you got left behind. What good are you, a leader? You're out whoring when your girls need you. Not super fair. She's actually doing a little market research, but whatever. Amalia cuts this speech off and tells her that her boss, Masson, told her today that they were at war. She pulls out a gun. I hope he told you what happens to spies during wartime. So now we think it's going to be an execution. Did you think for a moment that Amalia was just going to shoot Lucy? Nah. Me neither. Didn't, Didn't fool me. Lucy questions if this is Amalia really needed to take out her failure on someone else. Ugh. Amalia cocks the gun. You think Penance will forgive you for this? Lucy throws down some of the boxes. She's taking her gloves off. So she's going to fight with the gloves off. This is uh, mm-hmm. literally, I got the gloves off. Yeah. <laughs> got the gloves off, Spencer. We're going we're to really tussle here. Um, they start fighting, but Amalia obviously is able to kick the shit out of her because, you know, Amalia can fight Wait. and Lucy's just an old lady. Well, it, it helps that Lucy seems to be very intentionally not using her ability on Amalia. I don't know if this is just... Where we were, whether we're meant to draw out of this that Amalia actually, you know, Lucy actually doesn't want to hurt Amalia, or if this is just <laughs> a, a selectively done fight of where the one character does not actually use her abilities in anything other than boxes, because she straight up runs past Amalia, jumps over her, has to almost physically move her hands out of the way to avoid touching her to go for the gun instead. It's like, you have the ability to shatter a person if you want to. Clearly you're not wanting to use that, I guess, or what? Yeah, so she doesn't take opportunities to touch Amalia. I do think that Lucy's turn there requires her to touch something and hold it for a while for it to break. I don't think it breaks instantaneously. I think there has to be like 
a few beats where she's holding the thing for it to crack and probably based on like how strong the thing is right because the boxes broke a lot faster than the concrete does later in this scene so mm -hmm. maybe there's an element of that to it but i will point out um that you know lucy's supposed to have these hands where she's got to keep gloves on because if she touches anything it breaks but like you know she does pick herself up from some boxes uh with her hand and they don't shatter and then she picks the pin up and holds that and that doesn't shatter so either it's completely inconsistent or we're let we're supposed to believe that she's got some level of control over this that like but she doesn't trust it's not herself. it's not perfect yeah exactly she doesn't trust herself with it. it's not perfect but she does have some level of control I, i'm not sure i uh, got a little ahead of the recap there in the explanation but that's fine um basically lucy picks up a while they're fighting um amalia kicks uh lucy puts her on the ground starts punching her lucy touches the concrete the concrete starts to buckle and snap everything kind of explodes throws everything into disarray lucy then picks up a brooch i think it's the brooch from penance right yeah um and notice how she just picks that up no gloves and then amalia stands over her cocks the gun amalia drops the gun tells her she's finished in london for you're finished in this town i tell you <laughs> don't come around here no more if i mm. ever see your face here again oh man what a trope Tells her uh, she and Annie are going to put her on a boat. You'll stay on it until you're well fucking gone. And you'll tell me everything you know. Everything. Um, speaking of Annie. where the ammunitions are. Speaking of Annie. Polite of her to stay out of this fight scene for the characters to have their moment, I guess. Well, no, there was that mo There was a moment where Amalia told uh, Bonferrini to stay outside because she wanted to make sure basically that like people survived. Um. I think what she was trying to tell Annie is I don't trust you. If, you, if, if there are any people in here, you'll probably kill them. So I got to leave you outside. I'm thinking they would have made a bit of noise that Bonfire may come running, but maybe she's just a stickler for orders. Yeah. But yeah. She seems the type. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. And when she says, you know, where are the, you know, basically where the ammunition uh, actually, where the ammunition is actually, at. apparently she gets told because then we see, a uh, skyline of London and we see <laughs> a giant explosion. So I guess that Lucy did actually tell her and they went to wherever that was and they exploded because we hear Masson on his new fancy landline. He's using mm -hmm. his phone. I'm so proud of Masson. Mm -hmm. And he's talking with someone about the fire to his credit. He does ask if anyone is hurt. Now you might lawyer and you might think that's just the liability aspect he's worried about. Um, there could be a component of that. I I tend to think that Masson really wanted to know, like, oh, nobody's hurt, right? Like, I think he does have that gear. Mm -hmm. um, person on the other line explains no one was hurt. Masson, during this conversation, it's kind of subtle if you don't catch it, but it's, it's an interesting, interesting writing. He assumes this happened at the factory mm -hmm. because how else would these bombs explode? Well, when you're making them, like, that makes the most sense. And then someone says, no, it happened at the storage facility. Now, we know from the beginning of the episode that Masson knows these things are pretty stable. He takes one out of a box and throws it at a guy. Yeah. So he knows if the storage facility blew up, there is nefarious things going on here. So that's when he drops his head and he goes, oh, fuck. Like, this is a, this is a much more serious situation than what I originally thought, which was I thought that, you know, there was just an accident at the, at the um, factory. And again, how does this serve the interests of the orphanage to do this? This is a big crime. This They've is got a to punch back, Spencer. Didn't you hear? They, they established. They checked that box. They have to punch back. I heard that. <laughs> How does it help is still my know. question. I don't know. It seems you, a little You think you're going to scare Masson off? Even if Masson was responsible, you think blowing up his explosives is going to get him to stop? 
You think this yeah. is, you think that's going to scare him off from further action? Masson doesn't seem to me to be the type of guy whose finances are all locked up in like one deal, right? You're not going <laughs> to like shipment. Yeah, you're not going to blow up one shipment and completely cripple the guy's finances. Um, also, like Amalia is not providing reliable intel back to her brain trust because Masson did not it co- did not confess to the crime. So I don't even know why you're hitting him. Like it, the whole thing doesn't make a lot of sense. And I do think if they're they're true to what the characters have been so far, they whatever punch they think they just did to Masson is going to be six times heavier coming back at him in the next episode. Because Masson is not going to take this land down. No, Masson's, if anything, this seems like it plays into Masson's hands because he can connect it back to them and get the government involved that they just committed a serious crime and threat to the public well-being in the streets of London. This, This seems like it just fits in perfectly to what he wants to do through the legal authorities, but we'll find out. If that's the case, why did he see so? Why did he seem so bummed out when he figured out it was a storage facility? Uh, I mean, it, it sucks. It's it sucks that the plan as he'd set it up didn't go according to plan of where they would instead just blow up a facility of his that, that didn't have anything valuable in it. He's, it's still a loss of investment. He still would have preferred if it was you know just a Potemkin village that went up rather than his actual property. But that that's my read on it. He's still yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Cut to Malady in a jail cell. You're probably your favorite scene of the episode. Um, she's <laughs> it, babbling, <it's> <laughs> asking someone if they planned it, asking why they won't play with her. Spencer, uh, question for you. Is she talking to God or Amalia here? That's a fun thought. I'm not sure. I was assuming God, because she always talks to God. But who, when she refers to God, who does she actually mean? Yeah, that's my thought. You know, she's saying, why won't you play with me anymore? Uh, I thought I had the thought maybe she was babbling um, to either think like just talking to Amalia to herself kind of deal. I mean, it's also possible that um, that Malady is actually now that we know that someone is speaking out there in the universe and that Mary was actually conveying it. It's perfectly possible that Malady's actually tapping into that, that she is actually hearing messages from whatever this thing is. And either misunderstanding them, or they're potentially much less benevolent than we're seeing from the Mary source. Yeah. Cut to Amalia and Penance debriefing. Penance is obviously surprised about Lucy. Penance takes the news about Lucy a lot better than Amalia does, by the way. We don't. Amalia doesn't give her a lot of credit. Like, oh, Penance is never going to forgive you for this or whatever. Like, um, uh, th- that that was a yeah, different sure. quote. But but you know what I mean. Like, she always thinks that Penance is going to have like an, an overt emotional reaction to things. And like at this time, Amalia actually handled it worse um uh, amalia says they uh, should have seen it sooner penance is upset um but she seems upset that this is all happening in the same fucking day which is the point we keep driving home she's like god the lord we like we buried mary and now we've lost lucy lord mm-hmm. um penance is grateful that amalia spared lucy's life amalia says i didn't you did she mentions how lucy wouldn't leave without the pen and amalia tells penance that lucy told her she has no idea what anyone in the orphanage is going through, and Amalia hates that she's right. She says she can't get close to any of the people at the orphanage, then says, if Lucy shows her face in London again, it'll take more than a piece of jewelry to save her. Spencer, one, will Lucy be back in London? Yeah. Two, will Amalia kill her on sight? No. <laughs> My thoughts exactly. Then <laughs> it tells Amalia that Augustus is touched. Birds. He seems to control birds. 
Amalia seems surprised that Augustus is touched. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that did surprise her. And Penance explains that Augustus thinks Lavinia doesn't know. She says Augustus is afraid to tell her. Amalia, he isn't afraid to tell you. And they kind of share that ooh ooh moment, you know, Mm -hmm. like, ooh, you got a crush, girl. And then bang. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then you bang. Of course, it gets uh, broken up by our girl, uh, Primrose, well-meaning Primrose, walks in with Myrtle and Harriet. Mm -hmm. And Primrose explains that Myrtle has been translated. And she understood Mary's song. And here we go. We've got it for you. Big reveal of the episode. Spencer, you ready for it? You call this the big reveal of the episode. This is maybe the third big reveal of the episode. There's a lot of big reveals this episode. Well, it's at the end and they clearly have been building up for it. So I think maybe the show is telling you this is the big reveal of the episode. I thought the Masson thing was was probably the biggest. But, you know, this is what they've been building up to. Mm -hmm. Harriet starts to explain what Mary said. All right, I'm going to try to quote this as best I can. She said... You are not alone. Amalia says, I don't think we could all feel that. But Mary here, it clarifies. Mary said that to Amalia directly. She was singing to you, Amalia. Mm-hmm. This jars Amalia, backs her up. Amalia, my lonely soldier. Something about wearing stripes. I didn't leave you. I went inside the city. I was damaged, incomplete. I had to heal. Soon we will all be ready. But it's dark. There's a darkness. She said to everyone to all of us to gather and protect each other at this point amalia starts sobbing uncontrollably which is out of character for her goes on find me let me help those that will come below and find me come before the dark and we can save it ended there harriet i'm going to finish up the recap and we can we can talk about it harriet posits that those aren't mary's words it was somebody talking through her penance confirms it how is penance is any how is she in any position to confirm Cause, anything because she understands energy waves man and where they go <laughs> oh cheap shot of our girl penance right there harriet asks then who who do we need to find amalia crying stays quiet and bang end of episode so let's just uh we're going to talk just about this last segment of mm-hmm. what harriet through myrtle reveals was being sung through mary to Amalia, I guess, if all that d- diagram makes sense to anybody. Mm-hmm. What did you think of... Uh, I'm going to ask you two questions here. One, what did you think of the fact that Mary seemed to be singing... Um, she was she, Somebody else was speaking through her, which I think we kind of all saw that coming. But she was singing or talking specifically to Amalia. Well, it's specifically then, to Amalia with a footnote for everybody else. Specifically to Amalia. But then the second thing I'll ask you is... What did you think of the substance of this? I mean, do you are you do you feel like this tells us anything, or is it just so ambiguous that we can just read anything into it, and therefore it tells us nothing? It tells us something in the in the idea that there is a voice out there that this whatever it is is still a conscious entity and does still have a mission and seems to be using various peoples to that purpose. It tells us that we it helps us better understand what the game is being played. In some ways, it actually factors into Masson's prior paranoia, that he was the one that originally posited the idea that this seems conscious, this seems controlled, this seems to be the strings being pulled by an alien power, and lo and behold, he's right. Yeah. <laughs> if it's one of those things where everyone's dismissing him as oh he's a conservative reactionary, he's paranoid, there's no conspiracy. <laughs> in many ways we've had that confirmed it's just a question of whether it's a malevolent or benevolent conspiracy and who and who that and who the malevolence or benevolence is directed towards so i actually really liked this it was a fun 
I wouldn't even call it twist, but a fun bit of lore building in the universe about how things are actually working. As said, the show's been desperately needing a lot more setup, but if this is how it's going to do its reveals, this one's at least interesting. This one at least expands my mind and expands my hopes that there's wheels within wheels making this show work, even if they're rushing too fast down the track. Um, I think it um, continues to confirm what I suspect about this show. I think that this is going to be one of those shows where the internet starts to really go crazy about theories and stuff, but I think they've kind of laid it all out for you. And I think what we're going to find out is going to be like the thing. It's going to be like the, what is that? What is that thing where it's like the most obvious answer is usually true? What is that? Occam's razor. There you go. That thing. Um, See, co-host. Thank you. Yeah, fair for you. It's like that. Like, I think the most obvious thing is true here. I think that Amalia is literally an alien in a human form and Mm -hmm. this is this is maybe the captain of her ship you know talking to her and saying you know i'm still alive sorry you know basically our ship wrecked or whatever but Mm -hmm. you know we're still here we're still here for you trying to communicate to amalia that way and i think that that most basic answer is probably true that in my mind do we assume then that the captain if we're going to to refer to the voice as that is this big energy sphere thing that's being unearthed from underground or is in some way nestled inside of that yeah, probably, right? Okay. Maybe. maybe. Um, or maybe it's the bird watcher. Maybe it's Bran. You know, we, we, it's literally branded Stark. Maybe maybe, maybe Bran's king all along. I don't know. Yeah. Um, okay, let's now, we wrapped up the recap. Let's do some concluding thoughts on episode four. Now, you started this whole thing by saying, this ventured in the six and a half territory for Spencer. Now, Spencer went to law school, so six and a half might be a C minus on your radar. Let's curve it up for the rest of the world. That's really a B plus for all the rest of us mere mortals. That is a very, very high rating for Spencer. Spencer, you seem to really you like are, this episode. You are overselling it, but go on. I, I don't hear you say six and a half all that often for a show that's not like Mandalorian, right? Like you, you, you that's pretty high for you, in my opinion uh, and experience. Give us some concluding thoughts on why you like this episode. What made it better than the other ones? Um, because it seems to me to be the fact that they really slowed down, right? That was my guess, is that what you were really hoping for is that they slowed down. And and what I'm guessing here is that the fact that they slowed down a little bit, a little bit more dialogue, a little bit more character creation, slower plot development might have been what you were after. Is that Absolutely. true? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we had some excellent character scenes, which we've had a few of those before, but... It, Remind me, what's the name of the actress who plays Amalia? Uh, it's Laura Donnelly, is that it? Laura Donnelly, there you yep. go, yeah. You put her in a room with another actor and you just have them talk about something else, it makes for great scene work. She's a good actress yeah, she's and she brings good. out good acting to other people. And we got a great yeah. scene with Lord Masson here. Which, as you said, is a character we had a lot of hope for and we're kind of disappointed at. So it's nice to see him kind of rise back in importance. Otherwise, as you said, this episode, though it's still a lot to happen in a day still felt like a bit of a breath. It still felt like a bit of, okay, not just going to give you action scenes, I'm not going to rush point A to point B. I'm going to, as best as this show can, give you a setup episode. I'm going to give you some insight into the lore, insight into the broader narrative and various things that are going on behind the scenes. I'm going to give you some theory, theory confirmation and theory crafting. And I'm here for that. I enjoyed that. It made for some good scenes. It made for some fun twists. It made for some what seems to be interesting build-up for the last two episodes of this half season so couple that with some good character work and i'm perfectly willing to overlook a lot of the flaws i otherwise like to mock about this show that's fun stuff that's good stuff that's interesting stuff and it 
I can enjoy that even if I'm picking it out of some other things that are less tolerable. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I felt like it was, like I mentioned before, I just think it's a more sustainable episode of television. It made yeah. me a little bit more confident that we're going to get more than maybe, I don't know, 12 episodes of this whole thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know. Thought it was well done. So shout out to the show. Good episode. You get a thumbs up from Lee. Mm-hmm. Let's move to our segments. We will now go to best line of the episode. I and I alone am emperor best line of the episode. Spencer, do you have any nominees for best line of the episode? I've got a few. Would you like me to go through them or would you like to do round robin? You go. I'll interject as I can. Okay. All right. We've got a few here starting from the top. Um, honestly, it's a lot of Lord Masson quotes this episode. The man had some good lines. Uh, first one is the line that he gives, it's a, it's a twofer, but it's the lines that he gives when he's up on his almost literal soapbox lecturing the workers on the subject of unionizing. Um, you men are seeking a grievance. The docks are full of men who care about our troops and foreigners who care about nothing. I can fill your jobs in an hour. Go back to work and I'll forget that this happened. No repercussions. You won't be docketed for this stoppage. It's very generous. And then a second or two later, next time come and talk to me as individuals. To band together when you could stand alone, I expect more courage from Englishmen. It's an excellent embodiment of his personal philosophy and life on two different points, and it's a successful speech in its own right, too, in terms of, in one fell swoop, destroying the unionizing efforts that are there before him. Uh, I got uh, one. Your favorite mm-hmm. line of the episode. How are we ever going to see justice if we're not a part of justice? The one that you it, just completely just threw shade on immediately. It's a good line. It's a ham-handed execution. It's a good line that embodies a lot of the themes of the show. It's just, I don't know if it was the line delivery or just the unnecessary setup that went into it that just made it almost eye-rolling for me. <laughs> it's okay if you didn't like it. Like, you didn't like it. You didn't like it. But yeah, I mean, I think I think they built up for it and they tried to make it like an impactful line, so I'm going to nominate it. But uh, it's probably not going to win. Yeah, okay. Spoiler alert. Um, I got another one here. Please. I still don't see how you can go from working for Malady to being here with Amalia. Bonfire, you really think they're that different? <laughs> and a, fo- a follow-up from that line, too. We don't want any more violence. This is London, Doctor. There's always more. It- it's a fun scene between the two of them talking because they're diametrically posed, opposed to each other in terms of how they go about their lives. Cousins exist to not cause violence and to cure violence. Bonfire Annie seems to run only on violence. Yep. You got another one? I do. Um, we've got one now of... <laughs> I almost don't want to repeat the entire damn line because it goes on for so long, but I guess I will. It is uh, Penance and Amalia are talking when they're doing their walk and talk on the stairs. We get a whole series of lines that, as you noted, basically reveal the plot, at least when it comes to this character, of where, you know, Mary doesn't need me crying over her corpse. True. True. I can't imagine how many... F- and then Penance responds, True. I can't imagine how many funerals you've been through. Amalia, None. We don't do that when I'm from. We don't have enough time and we don't have enough ground. Doesn't tell us much, but it gives, it just it causes immediate, just fireworks start going off in your brain about, okay, my understanding of this character is now crystallizing in ways I didn't necessarily expect. And, I got one that's a little mm-hmm. petty. Please. Um, I have nothing against Mary. She was a rival. I think you know she wasn't. <laughs> Hugo to Frank, that's such a cutting little line. Um... Okay, same, same conversation between Penn and Somalia. You know better than anyone that, pain, that what pain does if you don't make time for it. All time does is run out. I was left here, completely alone, with nothing but a mission I was never actually given. No orders, no objectives. They left me here and fucked right off. Maybe they died. Who cares? 
I'm here, or a woman that can be killed just for having a voice. Which will be the world's fucking epitaph if I can't do something more than make it worse. Great line, powerfully delivered, again, embodies the personal philosophy of a character. Uh, I, have pl- I have more. This is actually a pretty quotable episode for me. Um, just a quick one from Desiree, just because I-, I love her character. She's keeping- this. I'm keeping my chins up. Something- sometimes pretending you feel good makes you feel better. Trust me. Yeah. Well said, Desiree. Yeah, she's the best. Um, from Frank, again, embodying one of the kind of underlying philosophies of the show. It's rich men grinding up thems who's helpless for extra penny on the pound, or the rights to a patch of sand, or a fuck. The working class tensions in the show are high, and Frank embodies quite a few of them. Faux show. Uh, there's nothing so bar- nothing is quite so barbaric as the well-to-do, line from Augustus, again, working class tensions. Uh... A line from Augustus to Am- to Penance, again, the whole wanting to be your friend line was great, but a closer for that as well was, remember my transgressions that I may re-earn your trust honestly over time. Again, I think they're overblowing how evil what he did was, but I can appreciate his honest sentiment to want to make things right with respect to Penance. It's a good, it's a good read on the guy. Uh, and then I'm not going to repeat all of Lord, what Lord Masson said when he's talking with Amalia, but all of it was great and maybe my favorite moment of the episode of where his entire run yeah. of his, again, personal philosophy embodied. We get a lot of those personal philosophy speeches this episode, and it's great. Even the one that, even the one that leads into it, but the Bidlows are old friends. Lavinia and I may, may not see eye to eye on everything, but she doesn't waste time with trifling people. Emphasizes something we already had from a prior episode that Lavinia and Masson may be two sides of the same coin. And we need to keep track of that. Um, I think we can nominate. I'm not going to do it, but the the whole thing at the end. I mean, I just I just did it, but it was yeah. the um, the translated Mary's song through Myrtle to Harriet now being spoken to everybody. Um, that whole sequence I think needs to be nominated, and mm-hmm. that's all I have on my list. Do you have anything else? I got three other ones real quick. Uh, Frank, Whoa, she, big one she gets episode. she gets justice from us. Good line. It's completing a weird arc for Frank. I didn't expect coming, but. The fact that she says she gets justice from us, I'll have the badge and balls from any man that tries that. She gets justice from us. Good. Good man. Well, well said, well done. Sticking to the higher virtues. Um, then other than, other than one you mentioned, two of the lines between Lucy and Amalia about, and what are you telling us? A better world? How many of your precious orphans would be lining up to be free of your better world if they had half a chance? We've seen that tension before that a lot of people don't see the, don't see themselves as touched. They see themselves as afflicted and would do everything to not be such. And I think our, some of our main characters forget that sometimes and the luxuries of their much easier to manage, uh, uh, not ripplings, what, what's, what's the term? Uh, um, turns. Turns, thank you. Um, and then last one from Malia, it wasn't supposed to be like this. I don't know what happened. How do you know what it's supposed to be like? Did you do this? Did you make this nightmare? I just got left behind. Again, everyone seems in the loop about this other than us, but it's a fun revelation to find out more about who Amalia actually is. So, that's all I got. You got some options. Who wins this time around? So, we're going to go... Because this is such a a nominee-heavy episode, we're going to go with a honorable mention honorable mention this week gets awarded to our very own lord masson a pestilence a few years back a pestilence ran through this city mm-hmm. some anarchic cabal found or developed a power that mocks god that molests and disfigures his natural laws and attack on the stability the harmony if you will of the empire and we must show the victims of this deliberate plague that they are not special they are not a community victims is all they have license to be 
Maybe my Ooh. favorite line of the episode, just how brutally cutting this line is. Really tough one. But best line of the episode, The Nevers, episode four is from Amalia. All time does is run out. I was left here completely alone with nothing but a mission. I was never actually given no orders, no objectives. They left me here and they fucked right off. Maybe they died. Who cares? But I'm here where a woman could be killed for having a voice, which would be the world's fucking epitaph if I can't do something other than make it worse. We've harped on this line because mm. it's probably the most important utterance that's happened in this mm-hmm. series so far Re- because revelation it's a monstrous revelation um it, it's just huge because obviously amalia is our protagonist she's the lead of the show and this from her own mouth is telling you that she was left here she is some other being you could speculate she's an alien from another galaxy from another timeline from another uh, whatever it is but she's something else she's not mm-hmm. like the rest of them and i don't mean touched she's different than the touched right and 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 that was something that we had some clues about the first three episodes was never given to us in plain text like it is here so obviously had to be best line of the episode i'm with you good choice now we transition to Best character arc. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I don't think I have at all telegraphed where I'm going with this segment. I, 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 tell me, man. I am just utterly at a loss as to who you're favoring this time around in the horse race. So all of our listeners are probably on pins and needles wondering who I'm going to award best character arc of the episode for episode four. But, shocker, hold on to your shorts, ladies and gentlemen. It's Frank what? Mundy. That's right. Oh, Frank my Mundy. God. The Mundy. I'm a Mundy stan. <laughs> Print the t-shirts. Let's do it. Let's have subreddits for Frank Mundy. I'm ready for the fake Twitter accounts with fake Frank Frank Mundy quotes. I want the memes. I want it all. Bring it to me. Frank Mundy needs to be a cultural icon at this point. That's what I'm saying to you about Frank Mundy. He he has started to, he has become the star of this show in one episode. He, uh, he's dominated the the scenes i felt like i felt like his scenes were the best he's become the moral compass of the show he's become the most interesting person in the show and by the way he's a hell of a boxer so mm-hmm. uh frank mundy my guy top of the list right now for me who did you have as best character arc of the episode hey you got you also use his name man the east end ape is who's, we, is who's winning for you this week east end ape he's got the belt <laughs> uh, I think Frank's a strong choice. I love the arc that he's on. It surprised me. It caught me off guard. I like how put together he actually is, almost in spite of himself. Some, kind of similar to Molly, he assumes that he's worse than he is. Difference is, is that he's probably more wrong than she is in terms of assuming how bad or damaged or useless he is uh, in these kind of moments. My pick, though, I think it just has to be Amalia this episode. This episode just hammered home that she is the protagonist, that she is the central character, that the sheer existence of turns appears to revolve around her, that she's in some way directly integrated to what even caused the touch to form. We'd, we'd kind of, she, Molly had kind of fallen out of being relevant a couple episodes ago, and she's just back to being so very much the center of the show that she can't be ignored. Do I necessarily like her arc the most? No, but its importance, I feel, is absolutely undeniable. I think Amalia is a very good choice here. Um, If you're going to do an Amalia as best character arc, episode four is probably the one I'd do. it. Maybe episode one, but definitely episode four for sure. She'd be my honorable mention. But uh, Frank Mundy, my guy, got the belt. World heavyweight champion of the world. 
most improved, Lord Masson compared to last episode. That is true. Masson has has done a huge bounce back. Um, he was our booby prize last week. He is not the booby prize this week. But let's transition to booby oh, prize. God. I went first with best character arc, so let's kick it to you for booby prize. Who is the worst character oh, arc of the week? I'm going to get hate mail for this. I'm going to get just raked over the coals, but Bonfire Annie. No, it's, you agree? I was going to go Bonfire Annie. I was sure you were going Penance. You're Penance every week. No, I thought I was no, like locked in. No, I did <laughs> Penance like once-ish. She's always like, you know, up there. But no, Bonfire Annie is just, is it just me or is she just the laziest written character? She's pretty boring. I think that they, they, put, they must have wrote this character after they cast it and actually costumed her. Because they clearly just are wanting to rely on her imagery and her swag. I mean, she's a gorgeous actress. She's got great mm-hmm. costuming. She, her physical acting is really good. How She commands presence when she walks in. But they don't give her anything in the way of lines. I feel like they're just like... They're just resting on the laurels of, of some of the strengths of this character. The visual strengths of the character. And they're not giving her good, good lines. It, she comes across just being a generic badass. In the way that you design a generic female badass character nowadays. Of where she is st- steadfast, determined, independent, does her own thing. Is directly murderous to anyone who even mildly slights her. And that's it. She's, she's nothing other than a few of these just kind of checkbox actions. And it's disappointing for a character that they've really heavily advertised. That they've really heavily built up as being a central figure. But, you know, if you do that, like, you know, meeting of equals kind of thing they're doing when they're debating what the future actions of the orphanage is, she's the one we have the least amount of really understanding or conceptualization of, or really even the least amount of investment in, of anybody that was in that room. And, yeah, it's disappointing. Uh, yeah, you took mine. I, was, I completely agree with you. I was going to pick Bonfire Annie for worst character arc. So, because I can't pick that, I'm going to have to pick somebody else. <laughs> kind of not fair because this particular character actually did not get any screen time. Goose Egg screen time still gets worst character arc of the week for me, and it is the Beggar King. Because uh, he, he's going to be my fallback if you picked he, mine. <laughs> be, he continues to become obsolete, and I'm not yeah. quite sure why they introduced him. I mean, uh, this, is, this is the totality of the Beggar King's impact on this episode they're listing off potential suspects could it be the beggar king well let's send bonfire annie some of his people or maybe not his people get burned to death that's it yep and he sends another character to speak for him meaning we're going to see even less of the beggar king now because nimble jack's apparently serving as his you know mouthpiece and agent so yeah this guy for some sort of dumb deal that that makes no difference i mean who do we really care if the beggar king forgives bonfire annie for blowing up his opium like i don't care if they forgives her for that that doesn't matter to me like why why are they settling that scene with that sort of give and take you could completely cut the beggar king character and every scene that he's been in and the show would not be the lesser for it the show would probably honestly be improved from being more focused yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, obviously they're going to, at some point, just jam you in. Like, oh yeah, by the way, we have the Beggar King. Bang, here here he is in the plot. But like, so far, seems pretty pointless. So, uh, Beggar King gets my booby prize of the week. Um, all right, are you ready for theory time? I, tell me, sir, what has the internet spoken to you about? Well, I mean, obviously, the, the main theory out there, we're continuing to build on the theory that Amalia is 
a that she her she had a she had killed herself. She has a dead she had a dead body, and that thing that came into her. The She's a sparkle, zombie of sorts. The magic fairy dust that came from the crashing spaceship was actually an alien, and uh, she's you know she's encompassing a human body but everybody there knows it and we're getting so much of it i mean just like putting cards on the table just like telling us about it this episode we're getting a lot of it so people continue to build on that theory but i want to shelve that one that one became a bit obvious this episode Mm. i want to move on to a different scene for my theory time with terry here um here you go spencer effie boyle oh Effie Boyle, the lady oh, who... Oh, the journalist, gotcha. The yeah. journalist who walked right into that police station. She's going to tell them men something. Oh my gosh, now I've had gin for breakfast too. Got a little retort for everybody, right? Doesn't she? Mm-hmm. Where? So she's in the police station. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next time we see the superintendent, we got Malady with a rope around the guy's neck. What I postulate to you, Spencer, um, and I'm not the first person to, to come up with this, although I did come up with this before, before I saw it online, but people have, have also posited the same thing online. I'm not going to say I'm the only person who's done it. Is that that was actually Malady? Is that Malady played Effie Boyle? She didn't come in through the window. She actually came in through the front door as Effie Boyle. Um, and if you go back to the scene, and you, you don't seem super excited about this, but if you because probably because you hate Malady, but if you go back to the scene <laughs> and you just listen to the to Effie's voice, it really does sound like the actress who plays Malady. And this could provide another explanation for how she was able to appear at the funeral if she is indeed capable of this level of subterfuge. And that's why I say it's, that's why I bring it to you. Not because, I mean, because it does it matter how she actually got a, a little, you know, belt or whatever it is around the superintendent's neck? Of course it doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. But what, but it does matter if she can be. I guess like normal enough to play act the part of a sane person for a while and actually go into costume. Because if she has that gear, we may see this in future episodes and it might be something that you need to start looking out for. If that's the case, it gives me a much more tolerable take on her character because the scenes I've liked of her best are where the ones she isn't just stark raving, giggling mad. It's like when she was in that scene when she was just in the carriage with Dr. Cousins. That was a perfectly acceptable scene, an interesting showing of her character and more about her. When she was talking with Amalia and suddenly lucid, that was fine too. So if she can do this, that could be interesting. It makes it even more confusing what exactly her turn is. I'm not sure if they're ever going to clarify what, how that works or, or how that's playing out, but she used to, it, does her turn involve her being able to assume different forms? You know, as the, again, the mirror opposite of Amalia, or is she just also really good at costuming? Maybe she's a chameleon. Maybe that's it. Maybe maybe we have. Maybe this is the first time we ever actually saw her turn. Spencer is when she became Effie Boyle. Look out, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the red eyes is just contacts. She's weird. Yeah, that's just yeah. people watching. <laughs> that's just yeah. We'll never see that again. They just wrote that off. Uh, I don't know, but that's my theory of the episode: is that Effie Boyle was actually Malady. Malady did not come in through the window. She came in through the front door. Do you have a theory for us, or are we going to end it there? Something I want to discuss. I don't have a theory, but I want to talk it out with you. Is that everybody is discussing Amalia in the context of, oh, they're aliens. Oh, they're aliens. They showed up. It was an alien spaceship. But she very distinctly says, when I'm from. Yeah. That strongly suggests time travel. If that is the case, how would you, what would you book the possibility that they're not aliens, they're just future humans? Well, if she so if she's a future human, is she still is she still in a body that's not really her own? 
Yes, this is an element of, you know, like, future humans have transitioned to, like, energy beings kind of thing, or, like, preserve oh, well, their souls. Oh, will be able to see them really well. Uh, oh, yeah. I hate this theory now. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I, I, I had so many th- th- thoughts I wanted to discuss, and they're just dead now. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that, I think the theories can, can intersect, right? Because they, I mean, the term alien is kind of a, a weird term. It means just, different just things means to different foreign, people. foreign, yeah. Yeah, all it means is, like, not immediately here as, like, a community member with me right yeah so we we still could have a quote alien spaceship but it could be like humans that had gone on to different parts of the galaxy that are coming that are coming back through a different time right mm-hmm. that, that very much could be the case and we still that still could wrap into the theory of you know um their their little souls or whatever are jumping off of the ship and the soul that jumped into amalia jumped into a dead body and therefore it's a little bit more cognizant everybody else is just sort of like a parasite type situation this whole, this whole message thing from alien source also reminds me of a science fiction story which i unfortunately can't remember the name of but it's a, it's an alien crash lands on mars and so as to communicate back with his race he basically causes all life to form on earth so as to basically manipulate messages that his alien race can pick up on it almost seems like this has elements of that in terms of what what this ever being is doing. Do you have any personal theories about whether this being is ultimately going to be benevolent or ultimately Lord Masson's going to be more correct about what its purposes or goals are? I think Masson's wrong. I think that the aliens are there to help. Hmm. Um, just because the, the tone of the message certainly wasn't like burn it down, you know, like we, it was very much like I'm still here. <laughs> that like might be suspicious this. if you did that. Yeah, well, I know, but I mean, all we have is what we we heard, right? And what we heard certainly did not seem aggressive. And Amalia, only real, like, confirmed non-human being that we have, like, the only person talking as an alien, Mm -hmm. sure sure seems to want to help other people. Like, she seems out to help others. I mean, she feels like that's her mission. And if it's her mission, then you know, we can infer that someone gave it to her, right? That it was the desire of whoever is in her hierarchy for her to act this way, to help others. So that all tells me that maybe they're okay. They're, they're, they're here to help us. Now, it'd be fair to say, though, that from what we're picking up so far, Amalia was not high in the hierarchy, that she was no. a foot soldier, a grunt. And for sure. Never was intended for a position of leadership. Maybe only even got brief orders about what even the purpose of this mission was, assuming it was a mission. So... <laughs> can't necessarily trust her that she even knows necessarily what the reason of them being here is maybe not but but at a bare but at a minimum she she is not operating um as if she should be hurting people so i would i'm not saying that like it's completely off the table that these guys are bad but i'm saying that of the evidence we have seems like they're probably good and that you know masson is probably being like a understandably react like if he if he truly believes these are like there's some like intelligent creation behind the turns Mm -hmm. and that they did this on purpose um then i you know what he's right to be a little scared of it right (laughs) he's right to be asking questions yeah it's not ridiculous for him to be worried about this so he doesn't have like a completely unreasonable position other other than this whole thing of like well if you have the turn you're a victim that's all you are don't you know don't even have a community of it that that's kind of going too far it's really lucky that lucy already been you know (laughs) revealed before they finished this translation plot because if they had re- said that this message was what Mary's powers were, and that had gotten back to Lord Basson, that man would not have reacted well, I don't think. Oh, are you kidding me? He'd be fist pumping around Masson Abbey. He'd be like, called it, called it, these are aliens. 
Yes, before he calls in the troops. Yeah, then he mobilizes the basically every arm of the British Empire he can to try to actually kill these people because he probably would would start going that route if he had this information. But yeah, not going to. From what we can tell, probably not going to get back to him because his mole has been snuffed out at least for now. Indeed. Okay. Anything else we want to talk about to wrap up episode four of the Nevers here on the Nevers More podcast? No, solid episode, enjoyable enough. Problems are fun to talk about with you as much as the highlights. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We really enjoyed doing this week by week. Um, If you are listening and you're enjoying it, please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Make sure to go to mangumtalks.com, upper right-hand corner, click contact us, talk to us. We love feedback from our listeners. Why? Because we love our listeners. Thank you all for joining us. We're going to be back next week here on the Devs More Podcast. Talk more about the Nevers for Episode 5. Until then, see you.